I got a couple words for you. Tonight, I took the living legend, so-called self-proclaimed Terry Funk, and I beat his ass right in the center of the ring. I took Sabu, the crazy man of wrestling, and I beat his ass in the center of the ring. I sent them both back to the dressing room, Mr. Gordon. As a result of that, I want you to declare me right now in front of this TV camera, in front of the entire world, as the ECW heavyweight champion to prove that I am the franchise. Sherry saw it. The whole world saw it. Philadelphia, you witnessed it live. Professional wrestling as it was meant to be. Ass kicking. Take no names. Beat the hell out of whoever's in front of you. Terry Funk, I smashed your knee to obliviatory. When I took you with that chair outside the ring, even the crazy man Sabu and his people looked at me and said, oh my God, it's the end of an era. Finally put to rest. Funk family. I don't give a You keep your mouth shut. You keep your mouth shut. You can fire me if you want to. You can take me out of this territory if you want to. But you can't stop the franchise. Someplace, sometime, I will be heavyweight champion. To episode 8 of Bushby and Thompson's Wrestling Adventure on postwrestling.com and I'm Martin Bushby and joining me as always is the main man himself, the youngest in charge, double underscore, <laughs> Andrew Thompson. Andrew, how's it going this month? What, what's going on, Martin? It's always a pleasure talking to you, my man. Always a blessing to hear your voice. How are you feeling today, man? Yeah, I'm feeling really good, mate. Some of the restrictions are starting to ease over here in the UK, so getting to see um, a lot more friends and stuff. So it's been a pretty good month, good weather over here, but... Um, for this month's show, we're going we're going to be going extreme because we're looking back at the 2004 rise and fall of ECW. And joining us is wrestling historian and author John Lister. John, thanks for coming on the show with us this month. It's great to be here. Good job. And, uh, I appreciate you coming on, man. Thank you. And you've authored a number of books on wrestling, but specifically for this show, you wrote Turning the Tables about ECW. And you also uh, made a couple of trips over to Philadelphia for uh, ECW shows in the late 90s, didn't you? Yeah, so I wrote um, Turning the Tables the summer after the uh, the DVD we're talking about. Uh, in the, turned out to be in the run-up to the, the one-night stand pay-per-view, which for, turned out to be very fortunate as I didn't really have sort of a, a natural ending for the book other than ECW fizzling out. So that made a, a good ending. It's kind of amazing to, to know that people sort of still buying it I think 16 years on now, which is longer than ECW was in existence. <laughs> hey, John, I wanted to ask, like, would you say that the the Turning the Tables book is probably the one of the most um, the, the most receptive and response, like as far as the like the responses you got, would you say that the ECW book is probably the one that has you know got, gotten the most responses and been the most receptive out of uh, out, out of some of the things that you published? Yeah, definitely. It's uh, say so it's still sort of selling selling quite well today, um, and it it seemed to kind of really pick the right subject something was uh big enough to sort of justify a full-length book but kind of a small enough subject that you could kind of do it justice mm-hmm. um and it's, it's it's amazing that it's still kind of um of interest to people this this much longer it's a bit like in sort of you know the 1990s if i've written a book about maybe you know florida championship wrestling or something you wouldn't have thought people would be be interested in it that much longer mm. 
Yeah, I think because more and more people are discovering it, especially through the WWE Network, aren't they? Um, so I suppose, you know, people are still going back and watching ECW. Because, um, I mean, before we get into the documentary, I just wanted to talk about our memories of ECW. I mean, Andrew, obviously, far too young to be watching such <laughs> violence at the time. But um, is ECW something you've gone back and watched? And um, Had you seen this documentary before? No, so this is my first time uh, actually seeing this documentary. Uh, I, I think the first time I want to say I saw in like an original ECW show was after the one night stand 2006 show because my father had a co-worker who was very into wrestling and I remember asking him like about ECW and I know he had this one tape and I watched it and that, that was I think that was my first like real like my first time actually seeing like an original ECW show outside of you know the WWE's portion of you know of the brand or the promotion of the company. Could you remember what tape it was or any of the matches from it? I do not remember that at all. <laughs> but 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 I but you know you got of course you mentioned the WWE network, uh like you know, you go back and watch certain stuff and you know you get to get to catch up on everything. Yes, yeah, I suppose it's gonna be interesting from your point of view, me and John living through it and sort of like maybe looking back at certain portions of it, you know, with the rose tinted glasses, but I suppose because, you know, that's the critique that ECW gets now that a lot of it, you know, it's very much of the time and a lot of it doesn't uh, doesn't stand the test of time and live up to through <laughs> today's lenses. But um, I suppose for me, and it might be similar to Rob, I mean, I really got into ECW through uh, magazines over here in the UK, Superstars of Wrestling and uh, Power Slam. Uh, initially, they had a brilliant image from the night the line was crossed um, on the front cover of Superstars of Wrestling. It was um, Terry Funk. Sabu and Shane Douglas all in sort of like a, a three-way sleeper. And I'd never seen anything like that before, especially just watching, you know, cartoony WF at the time and maybe sort of like a bit more serious WCW. But um, yeah, and then tape trading, um, Rob Butcher, who a lot of UK, you know, fans of a certain age um, will know was sort of like one of the big tape traders in the UK and got um, the night the line was crossed off him. And it was unbelievable. I didn't care about the, how bad the production quality was. I was all a single camera but i'd never seen anything like it and i was i was hooked after that i mean um john is, is yours um, a similar story to mine or did you got into ecw prior to it the night the line was crossed no it was uh, very similar uh obviously seeing it in uh in palestine which was george tahinos who's a photographer in new jersey and pennsylvania um was sort of a contact of finn so he he would always be sending sort of these great ringside photos um, actually, I went to university in the same city where uh, Rob lived. So every Wednesday afternoon, um, all the universities in, in Britain at the time had a, a policy that you there were no lectures on Wednesday afternoons because that was meant to be time for doing sports. Mm. Uh, so rather than doing sports, I went around Rob's house and would watch the latest ECW tape every week. So I was keeping quite quite up to date with it that way. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, yeah. Because I can imagine he had quite the tape collection. I, I can't even imagine how he did it these days. He used to do compilations, didn't he, where he could look down his list and then select different matches, and then you could order them on long play videos so you get extra matches on there. And I can imagine he had quite the setup, um, set, sorting all these tapes out for everybody. Yeah, he uh, pretty much had to give up in the end because he he didn't sleep a full night for several years because uh, obviously in those days it wasn't just like burning a disc where it takes a few minutes. It was you if if you copied a four hour tape, it took four hours, mm. and he was in sort of such demand. He had all these videos going. He'd have to get up uh, at sort of four o'clock in the morning to change all the tapes over to keep up with the demand. <laughs> 
Did um did was he one of the people you ventured over to uh to Philadelphia with then in the late night? Yeah, it was uh went over with Rob. Uh, so Rob had been over with Finn Martin and Power Slam at Cyber Slam '96, which was February of that year, which was the fan convention, uh, and then sort of the shows in uh, Philadelphia. Uh, and then I went with Rob in August that year for a couple of shows. One was a spot show, and one was the Doctor Is In at ECW. Uh, and then enjoyed it so much. I went back to the, the next February uh, as part of a much longer trip where I went sort of all around the sort of eastern US from Tennessee to like Channel 5 Studios for USWA, uh, WWF pay-per-views in uh, the Final Four pay-per-view and the sort of TV tapings. And then went up to New York and Pennsylvania for the ECW weekend, which had a, another arena show. So it was something I was sort of really into at the time and, um, you know, a very good use of uh, my student loan instead of spending it on sort of money. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just coming up actually to, I think five years from now, I, I've got to a point where that loan is finally written off. So I'll have uh, managed to get a free trip from paid for by the government, which would be quite good. Wow. That, yeah, it certainly sounds like a brilliant wrestling trip. And a lot of those sort of like venues that you've ventured off to don't even exist anymore, do they? Especially sort of like in, in you know, the Channel 5 studios and things. Yeah, also, uh, you know, another trip, uh, went to the Dallas Sportatorium and went to quite a few sort of those venues like that. So it was great to kind of catch them, even though Dallas at that point, it was about 150 fans and it was uh, sort of a, an outlaw promotion. They had Mark Von Erich, which was not a very convincing character. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was good just to kind of, you know, get the atmosphere and even just imagine what it must have been like in the days when it was 5,000 people there. Oh, definitely. Um, Andrew, sort of like I always read sort of like and sort of like see things, especially in this documentary and other things I've read, that Philadelphia has got quite the reputation of being sort of like quite a rough city. Is, that, is it somewhere that you've managed to venture to? I've been to the Philadelphia airport. That's about as far as I've gone to Philadelphia. <laughs> I, 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 do, I do hope to visit the city one day. Yeah, same here. It seems like a very historic place to go. I mean, uh, John, what was the ECW arena like? And we were talking off air and I was saying that I'd been to see PWG at the sort of like at Legion Post and it was the most uncomfortable experience watching wrestling. Was it similar at the ECW arena? It always seems like these sort of really famous venues aren't exactly the best buildings. Yeah, I mean, if anyone's been to uh, the venue, which is now it's for 2300 arena in the last sort of, 10 to 15 years, it's nothing like that. You know, now it's been sort of really done to be a purpose-built arena. At that time, it was literally just sort of a warehouse that was used for the, the Mummer's Day parades, which was a sort of a local fundraising event, a um, bit like kind of the uh, local carnivals that you get here in uh, the autumn. Uh, so it was sort of a, a warehouse that was used for sort of bingo fundraising, which is where sort of jokes about it being a bingo hall were. But it's literally just they, they sort of carved out this space, put up some bleacher sheet, uh, seats and made for use of it. And it was it was kind of a perfect venue for the side of wrestling we we're doing because there were so many. It, it wasn't like, you know, this purpose built. Everything's exactly the same arena. So there were these little balconies and kind of little uh, nooks around that you could, you know, throw people off, jump people off, brawl into Um and then the, the backstage area was like literally no facilities at all. It was just an, an open space with some tables. Um, some broken rings and then just a room full of uh, old sewing machines, which we use for making the uh, costumes worn on the, the braids. And that's also where famously is mentioned in the documentary, Al Snow found the, the styrofoam head, which has been used <laughs> for, for making the hats, uh, which obviously, you know, sparked into it. But 
yeah it was it was kind of it's, it was really a rundown venue it was perfect for kind of the, the grimy sort of alternative kind of venue they were going for but it was yeah. you know once you're in when it was a, a packed venue you were you were in your seat if you thought you were getting to the other side of the building to to get to the bathroom or to you know get to the merchandise table <laughs> you were looking at an hour's round trip to get there just fighting <laughs> through the crowd so it was it was really to stay where you were and and hold your bladder <laughs> Yeah, you mentioned uh, the 2300 Arena. I'm, I'm interested to see how MOW is going to set up, uh, set, 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 have, have that set up because they're going to be running that venue in July when they're going to have fans in attendance for the first time since, I want to say, early early 2020. So I'm interested to see how, you know, how they shape up that venue for their, for their TV tapings going forward. Yeah, it should be interesting for sure. And it's so wild that it's sort of like we're talking about restrictions being lifted over in the UK, but I suppose, you know, we're seeing the pictures coming out of the US this past weekend and that UFC and then that concert they had at Daly's Place. And it seems like, you know, mm. things are back to normal, especially in Florida. I mean, these packed out concerts and sort of like... Man, hey, have, have, you, have you seen some of these uh, some of these videos like on social media? And I think it was, I, I don't know which country it was, but they had like 50,000 people at a concert and wow. they, as they like clear, clear of COVID like in, in, in that specific area. And I was just like, man, the days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it'll be interesting to see when we do get back to sort of like doing that over here and over in, yeah. But um, I suppose onto the documentary and obviously this was released as part of a DVD in 2004. And um, so one of the best selling WWE DVDs of all time. And obviously it sparked them to do one night only um, a year later and then restart the promotion after that. I mean, um, Andrew, what were some of your, before we get into the, you know, nitty gritty of the DVD, what were some of your initial thoughts watching this, you know, people who were included in interview wise and who were maybe missed out? So like initially just watching it, of course, I mentioned earlier, this is my first time seeing it. I, I, I think, I think I have uh, wait, just, uh, have you got, you guys have seen this before, right? Yeah. Seen this documentary before. So I, I think I kind of have like a, uh, like kind of, kind of, you know, just the the new eye type of perspective mm-hmm. to it, like just kind of taking everything in as far as like ECW. Like, of course, you know, you go back and find out and research and learn about the history of it. But like, this is my first time watching this specific documentary. So, I mean, I, I thought it was good. Like, but, you know, I, I did, like you mentioned off air, Mark, like there was some, some, some portions of it that was kind of, you know, iffy, like particularly pertaining to, you know, some things that Paul Heyman said. So, I mean, uh, I, I think it was a solid documentary, you know, for the most part, but I'm interested to hear you guys' uh, takes as well to kind of, you know, f- fill in some of the gaps that, that may have been missed. As far as who they included um, interview-wise, John, obviously it was a lot of the people who were under WWE contract and, yeah. you know, we had a few <laughs> omissions there, didn't we? Sort of like Shane Douglas and Raven. Do you think, like, they should have gone out and, and got more people like that? Do you feel like they were glaring omissions or do you think we had enough people uh, to cover the history? I think, mate, you know, it, it would have made improve the documentary, but, I mean, they weren't short of people on there. There was a, a huge number of people kind of interviewed on there. And I think the thing that really stood out to me, kind of re-watching it now, um, was just sort of how fast paced the documentary is. Like the, the entire first hour is is not so much here as you saw it happen, but it's like there was this character and then this incident happened and then we yeah. had this match, we did this. Um, and it's not really till you get to kind of barely legal that you kind of get into more sort of a structured story of how the company sort of developed and, and went on. I think that's, in a way, that's kind of a fair assessment because up to barely legal ecw was it was the equivalent of following a wrestler and sort of supporting them as they build up and build up and eventually win the world title and 
running a pay-per-view was like winning the world title if you were sort mm. of a fan of, of, of ECW. Uh, I mean, obviously after that, as they sort of continue to expand and have the financial difficulties, the the business side of it sort of you know couldn't be ignored anymore. It was was sort of having a having an effect. So I think in that way the the structure of the documentary kind of works quite well and kind of makes sense. I do remember at the time, and you know, obviously he's more involved in documentaries with like you know bigger names like The Undertaker, and certainly on the HBO uh, documentary about Andre the Giant was Vince McMahon is uh, quite heavily featured in this in a number of parts. What was interesting to me, I thought Andrew is that um, he's obviously. You know, obviously, he's quite happy to sort of like, um, you know, disparage sort of like other promotions such as WCW and things. But he seems very, very complimentary of ECW and certainly, you know, whether it's true or not, he talks about wanting to support them and help them out quite a bit. Yeah, that that was kind of one of the surprising parts of the documentary. He did seem mo- mostly positive towards ECW, but there were like a couple of points where he was like, you know, made sure to mention that he didn't view ECW as a, a threat per se and mm-hmm. then view them as like, you know, on the upper echelon of what WCW and WWF had at the time. But at the same time, he did recognize like how talented most of the people or if not everybody in the promotion was and how like the fan base they had. So it, it was interesting, like see that perspective and, you know, see him kind of be mostly positive. And it kind of made me wonder, like when I was watching it, like I wonder at what point uh, during Vince McMahon's run as the chairman, like what, like when did he lose that mindset of uh, not wanting to collaborate with other promotions out there mm-hmm. if, if he you know which wwe is you know turned into this other thing but like i, I just wonder at what point like did he figure that he wasn't going to do that anymore because it seemed like a, a very beneficial beneficial thing to both sides yeah definitely well i think cause obviously business was down for wwe so they were like really yeah. scraping <laughs> anything they could get couldn't they really but um it is interesting john vince talking about that and obviously they discussed it slightly and then i think they went more into the business relationship between him and paul Heyman in the paul Heyman documentary but it was um a well-known sort of rumor around fans for a while that um sort of paul Heyman was on you know getting a thousand dollars a month or whatever off vince uh, while acw was going Yes, I mean, a later story that uh, turned up in in another book, which I kind of get the impression may have come from Heyman himself, was that the the money was, um, WWE was compensating them because they had been paid to to use a particular music for Two Cold Scorpio as a promotional deal. And obviously when he left that, that money dried up. And I'm not 100% sure about that. That seems quite odd that you know, mm. people would be paying to have their uh, have their music on ECW, which doesn't really seem like a a, a great sort of promotional uh, no. tour. But <laughs> I think it was more um, kind of the understanding that you know they had him on on payroll, and he would kind of then encourage um, you know wrestlers who were going to leave to favor WWE or WWF as it was over WCW, and also act as kind of a, a ground for people like um, Brackus and Al Snow that they had on the roster. Didn't want to let go because you didn't want to let sort of talent go to WCW at the time, but wanted to kind of send them down for either you know seasoning or you know come up with new ideas um, and sort of try try different ideas for them. So almost use it as sort of a, a test ground. Sort of like um sort of like a feeder promotion in a way for WWE. Yeah, sort of not quite with the, the, the sort of as formal relationship, but same same kind of effects and and obviously 
at that time, I think they were still of the idea that without uh, the territory systems that they had and sort of OVW and later sort of Florida Championship Wrestling NXT, um, that they understood kind of the, the value of a place for people to work who weren't working for WWE to kind of make a living, kind of develop their skills and, and have sort of something they could bring up. Because obviously at the time, uh, late 90s, other than uh, a brief deal with what was left of Memphis, they didn't really have anywhere for yeah. people who WWF were interested in um, to sort of wrestle before they came to WWF. And you didn't really want to get sort of, you know, unseasoned guys and put them straight out on TV. Well, um, just before we start getting into the documentary itself, there were they, sort of like the glaring omission for me was in there was no sort of like obviously we've all heard the stories and the rumors and the innuendo about sort of like the backstage area in ECW and the drink and the drugs. And yeah. also, I think also they didn't talk about, you know, we're seeing all these unprotected chair shots to the head. And this might have been sort of like slightly before the NFL case, um, Andrew, but they didn't really talk about, you know, the toil, the sort of like hardcore style took on the people you know with these unprotected chair shots and the like yeah definitely i think that's something that yeah it, this is a correct this is a wwe produced documentary yeah so like i don't think that they would have dove too deeply in, into concussions but i think that that should have definitely been something that should have been brought up like you mentioned so many unprotected chair shots uh the, a variation of different injuries like i, I know that um not not too long ago, uh, the, the the case for I think several wrestlers that were a part of ECW and and and, and some mm-hmm. a part of WWE was was recently dismissed. Um, that a, a lawsuit that was filed against WWE. So yeah, I definitely think that would have been something that would have been interesting to hear from. But like you know, there have been you know various accounts of wrestlers who were a part of ECW, um, who who have gone on record speaking about it. Like I know, um. I I, I can't remember which which platform it was. Like I, I hate when I do that. I like to remember who. Uh, who, who who did the interview? But I remember Raven uh, talking about like you know j- j- just some just some of the stuff that has progressed throughout the years as far as like injuries and stuff go, and like how it has like some of the stuff has had like long term effects on him. And you've heard that from various wrestlers. And yeah, I, again, I think that would have been something that would have been worth hearing. I think though, to extent that's uh, kind of a product of the times because this is sort of mid two thousands, and yeah. this is a time when WWF would still have you know somebody would have to take an unprotected chair shop as a sort of a disciplinary punishment. You know, you had uh, at the one night stand, you had the uh, uh, JBL going after the Blue Meanie, and sort of his punishment for that was to <laughs> be hit in the head hard with a chair. And you had the same thing with uh, Canyon, who sort of had upset people backstage or whatever. And, you know, the Undertaker then hit him as hard as he could in the head with a chair. And I think, you know, until kind of the Benoit incident, it, it didn't really, people hadn't given as much force as they should have to uh, sort of, you know, both what a terrible idea this was and also the, the long-term effects of, of kind of concussions. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, because obviously Ben Moore is uh, featuring this documentary in, in portions. And, you know, I'd forgot watching this, you know, that was a couple of years before, you know, the incident happened there. But I suppose going into the documentary itself and uh, we open up and, you know, Taz is here telling us about sort of like the early days of Eastern Championship Wrestling known by Todd Gordon and booked by Eddie Gilbert. And um, Heyman then goes on to say that Gordon and Gilbert had a falling out, so Gordon turned to Heyman. And it's interesting that Heyman sort of like, he obviously had a background as a photographer in New York in uh, in nightclubs, didn't he? And he's comparing wrestling to music, saying how, you know, 
you know, when Nirvana came, they blew up sort of like the hair metal of the 80s and, you know, and it completely changed every, everything. And he said sort of wrestling needs to do with the same here. But um, John, was um, am I right in saying that sort of like Eastern Championship wrestling came out of the ashes of uh, TWA that also featured Eddie, Eddie Gilbert? That's right. Yeah. The uh, Eddie Gilbert was a, a performer there, wasn't uh, involved in booking as far as I know, but that was run by uh, Joel Goodhart uh, the Tri-State Wrestling. Um and he really was the kind of guy where he just wanted to put on the most spectacular show ever, get, you know, the most uh, independent old name talent, overseas talent, um, really. And, and the fact that, you know, he had no possible way of turning a profit didn't really seem to stop him and, until he ran out of money. Um, I think the, one of the strangest matches looking back from the, the Tri-State era is there was a always you know you'd have the blood and guts match you'd have the old veterans match for like the former wf matches and you'd always have the, like, the match of like the the two sort of up and coming you know top workers athletic style and everything and um, one of his matches was owen hart against takayuki aizuka um who is the same guy uh who retired a couple of years ago from new japan who had the uh the, the big uh, steel fingers gimmick and you suddenly realize it's it's kind of amazing to think you know he was the the young high flying up and comer that's certainly a, a generation ago yeah but certainly uh mick foley in his first book talked um about those matches he had with eddie gilbert in twa so definitely worth going back and uh, reading about that if you if you don't know much about those matches that he had but um i suppose yeah because they kind of carried that tradition on didn't they because i think one of the first ecw shows i read about in uh power slam or superstars of wrestling had king kong bundy on it yeah so the early ecw it had a lot of um kind of what was the independent talent and at the time independent wrestling shows in america a lot of it was based around your bundy jimmy snooker demolition acts uh you know tony atlas that kind of uh, the guys you still have the wwf name and then the what we now sort of think of as the indie style would maybe be one or two matches on the undercard with you know the reckless youth kind of type guys um who sort of would make their name that way i mean traditionally you know you'd always have a, a battle royal and probably a match with the local sponsor would be involved um so it, it was still using those kind of names um, before kind of developing the sort of younger talent. Yeah, because after that um, sort of like initial um, history lesson at the start, we, we start quick firing into who were the initial stars of ECW. And uh, first up, they talk about Public Enemy, Flyboy, Rocco, Rock and Johnny Grunge. And um, <laughs> yeah, Andrew, I thought you'd find these two interesting, these two uh, <laughs> white guys with cornrows, um, you know, dancing around to hip hop music. What was your uh, impressions of uh, the public enemy? Was not impressed at all. Uh, but but I, <laughs> I, I, I have uh, heard of public enemy before. I remember uh, that JBL and Ron Simmons, they uh, I think they, they they put put a beating on them on a Sunday night heat show. I think it was or one of those mm. one of those programs. And uh, I remember JBL told the story of um that they were saying uh yeah Ro- Rocco I think Rocco or Johnny either told him that they didn't want to take the table spat and they mm-hmm. just straight straight up told him they weren't doing it and then they just walked out to the ring before the match started and then JBL said that Ron Simmons told him that if they don't want to take the finish we're going to take the finish to them and you know that <laughs> and, 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 and and you know what that what, what happened after that uh what, when exactly as Ron Simmons said it was going to happen 
Yeah, they've not um sort of like an act that I quite enjoyed at the time, um, John, but I don't think um it's aged very well. And they certainly got showed up when they did go to sort of like WWE and WCW, you know, certainly as uh, Paul Heyman explains in the documentary, and this happened with a, a number of ECW wrestlers, didn't it? That you know, they were you know, they were protected because they were hiding the negatives and extend uh, you know, showing their positives in ECW and you know, they weren't quite given those privileges when they went to the bigger promotions. Yeah, I think it's always interesting when somebody goes from sort of one promotion to another and doesn't do as well. And it's, you know, there's two ways of viewing it. One is that it just proves that the promotion they're in now is better because they came from this place and, and now they've been exposed as, as not very good. Or the way to look at it is, well, it shows that the other promotion is is doing something better creatively. If yeah. they can take these guys and make them sort of successful um, and, and you're not able to do that in your own system. Yeah, like just to piggyback off John's point, like there, there, there is something interesting to see how certain acts, uh, you know, how they're portrayed in one place and then they go to another one and either succeed or don't succeed. Like, you know, going back to, um, yeah, going back to Johnny and Rocco, like just like looking at that from 2021 eyes, of course, it doesn't hold that well. Uh, and it, 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 I really wasn't impressed with it at all. But like, <laughs> so knowing like that, that's that's just with that fat that audience and that you know that viewership. They, that's what they wanted at the time. And it's even like looking back at uh at the gangsters when they were in Smoky Mountain wrestling and they they were appealing they 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 weren't appealing, but they were in front of that predominantly southern mm. white audience who you know relayed those racial slurs publicly without you know any thought going through their mind as far as like you know exactly what they were saying. But that's like that. that it's, it's just weird thing. Like it was just. The, I, I'm not even gonna say that's the time because it feel like I'm, uh, you know, taken away from you know those those experiences that uh you know that they went through as far as you know being black men at that time. But like it, it was just like that. That was more so of what I, I guess people were into back then, and it just seemed like a, a part of the, the the culture. But you know, obviously things have you know grown and gladly changed. Yeah, because next up we have Taz, don't we? And obviously it looks quite different to sort of like what you know, the more infamous images of Taz as sort of like, you know, the uh, shoot fight in Taz, you know, we had the Tasmaniac and um, you know, Heyman said he called him up and asked him to wrestle Sabu and we see a few clips of their matches and um, and that's how Taz ended up working for Heyman. But I suppose the more famous name, um, you know, that's synonymous with ECW here that they talk about next on the documentary is Sabu and obviously Heyman, you know, talks about his reputation him coming out of FMW out of Japan and some of the sort of like wild and crazy moves and it's easy to see why he, you know, thought it'd be a fantastic fit. And I mean, some of these moves have been copied and made better these days, John, but at the time watching, you know, Sabu, even when he was botching these moves through tables and stuff, they were still quite breathtaking watching them in 94 or 95. Yeah, I think Sabu's kind of an interesting character because uh, a lot of people kind of look at that match and go, oh my God, he's blowing spots everywhere. He was, mm. you know, absolutely terrible. But the way that he would do it, it, it looks like, somebody was trying to, you know, hurt their opponent, perform an offensive move on their opponent and, and, you know, missed the move, which is obviously a thing that, you know, happens in real fight. You look at people throw a punch and it, it misses. It didn't look like these two guys are working together to uh, try and synchronize a, a move between them and their, you know, their timing's off and they, they haven't coordinated it properly. It looks more like somebody who you never knew, you know, he, he was completely reckless uh, he'd throw a move, it might hurt himself, it might hurt his opponent, and, you know, more often than not, it hurt his opponent. Andrew, have you had a chance to see much of Sabu? I know he's still sort of like, I think he was over here in the UK, in Liverpool, um, last year, or the year, sorry, the year before last, so he's still sort of like, 
you know, wrestling around. Have you had a chance to see him on many indie shows? I know he's still working uh, quite a bit in the US, you know, pre-COVID. Yes, yeah, Sabu's still going. I, I was actually going to, uh, like, uh, like, once John finished me, I was going to actually ask John, I was like, what like, what do you kind of think, like, the overall, like, consensus of what, what's, what, what, how people will view Sabu when he finally hangs it up? Because I feel like there are a lot of varying opinions about Sabu, especially, like, towards the later end of his career where he is now. And, like, we start to see, like, you, you, you know, you start to see some of these highlights that he has now. And then, but uh, I, I think, I think Sabu will like eventually like be looked at as one of kind of the innovators, I guess, of like a certain style. Like I was going to ask John, like, what do you kind of think? How do you think people are kind of going to view Sabu, you know, when he like completely, you know, wraps everything up? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to depend on whether or not you sort of saw him and experienced him in the time. So you could kind of see the contrast in styles because obviously now a lot of the kind of stuff he does is is very kind of running a bit, run of the mill. But I think it was, it was more of a way that he did it, but it was almost... You know, the fact that it was reckless as a positive, it, you know, it was a, a sort of a deliberate style choice. The fact there's kind of these, this element sort of danger and, and violence to to moves that, you know, could go wrong, but he kind of high flying, but he sort of risk his own body. Um, and I think that's something that could very easily be be sort of overlooked if you just purely sort of watch one of his matches out of context now and kind of, you know, especially in an age where a lot of the, uh, what people sort of see as a, as a good performer is somebody who does it very smoothly, um, but sort of very reliably sort of hits everything in a particular way is kind of in the right place for everything. Um, and it, it's a very different kind of comparison to be making. Yes. I remember Sabu saying uh, not too long ago, he had a, I think, I think he said it was either in 99 or it, it was like really close to when WCW was, uh, was closing down. He had a, a $400,000 offer from WCW. And I know Kevin Sullivan confirmed that that, that was indeed the case that he had offered. There was an offer on the table for Sabu to come and join WCW. And that was like one of the most like kind of interesting things that I've heard like this year, as far as like interviews and stuff go. Yeah, he had a few offers, didn't he? And then I think, um, you know, he had a few tryouts for uh, WWF. But I think, you know, ECW and certainly his work in FMW and some of the other stuff he did in Japan was certainly where you wanted to see him as a, you know, a, an indie fan back in the 90s. But um, back onto the documentary, they did um, move on to Terry Funk. And obviously he's sort of like the old, you know, the previous generation. We're seeing all this new generation of talent and then, um, Funk sort of like the guy, you know, he's got the famous family name and, and you know, Heyman credits Funk with ECW surviving. He says that, you know, Funk had the sense to put over the next generation to leave something behind. And he was a really key component, especially in that um, early ECW, wasn't he, with, with certainly legitimizing the promotion, John? Yeah, I think it's very much an example of um, kind of a Heyman philosophy that you have one veteran who is a legend, um, you know, puts some guys over and has a big name rather than it being, you know, half a dozen sort of names, names from the past. And that way it's much more effective. And it also, it doesn't kind of take over the image of a company as kind of new and up and coming talents, which is quite funny. in the example of, you know, somebody like, uh, like a Rocco Rock, who was frankly, he was, getting on quite a bit when he started to took on the, the public enemy character and had been around the sort of the, the independent team for years. Um, but somebody like Terry Funk, um, you, you had that kind of uh, name, but like the, the Bill Apton magazines would sort of get interested in, but possibly if you went to sort of a sponsor or trying to get a TV deal, but they, they might be aware of that name. So it really helped to have sort of that, that sort of one link to the past. 
And then they move on to the uh, famous match uh, we were talking about earlier in the show, the uh, night line was cross show, uh, Sabu v Shane Douglas v Terry Funk, and um, went to a one-hour draw. And um, like I said at the start, I remember having this, um, I don't know how many times the tape had been copied, uh, but Andrew, the quality on this thing was absolutely terrible. Um, I don't know how to describe it to you, but still watching this, I was, you know, my jaw was dropped. I'd never seen anything like this. They were brawling all over the crowd, Sabu doing his crazy stuff. You even had Terry Funk going on to commentary. And at the time, as a, as a young fan, I'd never quite seen anything like this, but I've not had a chance to go back and watch it, so I'm not really sure how it uh, would stand up today. I, um, you know, I like to keep those memories uh, as they are, but I, I wouldn't dare say how it would stand up today. You've just got to imagine these things at the time. And um, But one person who's not really, they don't really sort of like have a little package for him, is Shane Douglas, who was certainly, you know, one of the bigger names in, in, in ECW and certainly known for his promo ability. And is Shane Douglas someone, Andrew, who you've had a chance to see much of? Because obviously his career was sort of winding down and he might have been doing some TNA stuff when you first started yeah. watching wrestling. Yeah, that, that, that was probably my first exposure to Shane Douglas. And, you know, yeah, like, like I mentioned earlier a couple of times, uh, you know, like you just go back and, you know, watch old stuff. But like, yeah, I, I primarily saw Shane Douglas throughout his years uh, through TNA. Mm. Yeah, because Johnny, he seems to be quite a sort of like Marmite figure be- between fans. Don't they? Some people say that, you know, he was overblown and sort of like point to his WWF and his WCW stuff as, as things that didn't quite work out that well for him. But certainly around this time period, um, sort of like this three way that he was involved in and his promo ability, it was certainly... I thought an exciting, exciting person to watch in '94. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely someone who, you know, however good or bad he really was, I think his probably opinion of himself was higher than that of a lot of the sort of you know, the analysts and promoters. But in ECW, that really worked because they were able to harness that into kind of his character and his sort of you know general sense that he he was better than people thought he was 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 something that was kind of built into his character and really sort of came through in his, his promos and you look back and the idea that you know one of the big things was that one of the ecw tv episodes started with him doing a, a 28 minute interview um you, you'd hear that now and you go oh my god this is just the worst thing ever if you <laughs> turn into four and you told this 28 minute interview going it's like this is gonna be be terrible um but again, it's it's being different to what was happening at the time, and that really is is one of the things that does hold up about the ECW TV show, is that it it didn't have a strict format. It wasn't presented in the same way as sort of Raw and Nitro and SmackDown and sort of all the WWF TV for sort of last twenty years, where everything is the same format it, it's two hours of sort of real time so everything happens in in sequence and it's kind of your matches are done in a certain way and then you have the promos done in a certain way and vcw was more of a kind of a magazine style so you might get four matches you might open with sort of an in-ring promo there might be backstage stuff you get sometimes you just get highlights of matches which if you later saw the full version you, you know why it was only the highlights were shown um but it was, you know, you then maybe you get a music video, you'd get sort of the interviews at the end. Um, so you, you you weren't kind of in this pattern of of what was going to put in the show and it wasn't sort of so formulaic. And next up, we have sort of like one of the big things, and I think ECW was known for this, especially when you're talking about the other two bigger promotions, WF as it was at the time, and WCW, and it really seemed like... Uh, ECW had a sort of like very anti WCW stance compared to WWF. I know they didn't like either of the big promotions, but it especially seemed to be directed at WCW. And obviously, 
Paul Heyman talked about his history with WCW and explained, you know, after they fired him, he, he did cultivate that anti-WCW attitude. And, you know, Tommy Dreamer even says that, you know, joining WCW was like joining the Taliban in Paul's eyes. And uh, it's very clear from this, you know, Heyman and Bischoff didn't get along at all. And it's interesting throughout this DVD to hear both sides of their story, you know, Bischoff, especially later saying that, you know, Paul Heyman might want to say that I raided his talent, but to me that was an acquisition, which I thought was, you know, quite cheeky and interesting from Bischoff there. But as much as we talked earlier, Andrew, about, um, you know, a lot of talent maybe going over to WWF with them, them having this relationship behind the scenes, it certainly seemed like a lot of early ECW talent, your likes of Eddie Guerrero and that were uh, going over to WCW instead. Yeah, Eric Bischoff definitely had his eyes on a on a plethora of w, on a plethora of ECW talent. Like I like throughout like this documentary, it was interesting hearing both Bischoff and Heyman uh, speak about one another, uh, specifically because they were in WWE at the same time as the time of this uh, documentary, and then like seeing where they were uh, several years ago. I believe it was it seemed like forever ago when they were both the uh, appointed the executive directors of uh, Raw yeah. and SmackDown at the time. Both got uh, removed from those positions, and I I always wonder like how they interact with each other like because just seeing this and like just seeing how Heyman just had this you know kind of like it it wasn't like aggressive towards Bischoff as far as like how he was referring to him at at that specific time but it was more so like that like I'm not really too sure how to feel about this guy and I always wondered how they react to each other now like of course I've seen Bischoff publicly say and Heyman have both publicly said that there's no you know bad blood like they always you know very cordial to each other but like I always wonder like within their conversations like is it that little like snarky like mm. little, you know side, <laughs> sidebar comments and stuff like that so yeah it, it, I think that was a very interesting like thing to have uh Eric Bischoff in this documentary and then seeing how him and Paul Heyman kind of you know refer to each other throughout you know various portions uh doing their interviews well, if your take on that, John, in terms of Bischoff saying, you know, he can talk about I raided them and, you know, being an ECW fan at the time, you're like, oh, how dare WCW take all this stuff? Well, it's natural for wrestlers to want to earn more money out of this thing, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the thing about ECW was it was the first real promotion where you you had part of the marketing was that people would be a fan of a promotion rather than just a fan of the wrestlers. Um so ECW obviously was always for babyface and the storyline. And if you had, you know, WCW was stealing our talent, that was kind of in a way part of the storyline. One thing you have to remember about the context is that I think a lot of the, the people in Philadelphia would probably naturally historically have been more WCW and WA fans than WWF because of the, the in-ring style, the sort of generally the better matches and the more sort of blunt guts. But at this particular point where we're talking sort of 94 to 96 was the era where, you know, the NWO was yet to come along um, and Hulk Hogan had come in and brought a lot of his sort of old WWF buddies. And it was a time where you could definitely tell that people with potential like sort of Steve Austin and, and Brian Pillman were not getting the opportunities they really deserved. And I think that was one of the reasons why sort of WCW to their fans were sort of so much of their, the enemy almost, you know, ahead of, of, of WWF on the sort of a hit list. With someone who was so heavily involved in ECW, obviously Tommy Dreamer gets quite a lot of play and he's one of the main talking heads in this documentary. And um, obviously they go through his rise up and him coming in as sort of like the blue chipper babyface, almost unrecognizable to the guy that we that we see these days, still 
you know, um, I think he headlined um, an Impact Wrestling show earlier on this year or later last year, so still going today. But it's interesting, Andrew, seeing his sort of like rise up the ranks and how, you know, initially the fans hated him and then took him as one of their own, especially through the Singapore came match with Sandman. Okay, say, say that again, Martin. I didn't catch the name that you referred to. Oh, Tommy Dreamer. Yeah, t- Tommy Dreamer, like, of course, he's like, uh, yeah, he's with, I think he's in the creative team. He's one of the heads of the creative team with Impact right now. And it's, it, it really has been interesting to see how Tommy Dreamer's career is, like, mapped out over the years, like, especially throughout the years that I've been able to see him. Like, of course, like, you know, I, as I mentioned earlier, like, my first time getting to see ECW was probably late, like, later after uh, 2006, after that One Night Stand show. And Dreamer has, like, been one of those, like, consistently, uh, like, he's always, like, consistently appeared and popped up everywhere. Like, he has his own promotion that I've seen on, on Twitch and stuff like that. And, like, just seeing him, of course, in his time in TNA and then, you know, if he had his time in WWE and, you know, what he's doing with Impact right now, consistently uh, appearing on Impact and, you know, while heading the creative team. So I, I think Tommy Dreamer has, like, you know, especially, like, going back to the documentary, he was, like, um, how he didn't have that much fan favor when he initially came in ACW. He was seen as like the pretty, pretty boy who, you know, had to garner the respect of the people in attendance. And, you know, now it seems like Tommy Dreamer has like earned a lot of, not even seem it is like he's earned a lot of respect from a lot of people. And uh, like, I, I, well, whenever I hear Tommy Dreamer's name, I almost think, I always think about uh, that interview he did one time when he said that what he was planning to do to Paul Heyman at WrestleMania 17, I think it was. I don't know if you guys ever heard of that story or that. No. Oh, he, he he said that he was he was planning to jump over the barricade and he was going to, and I quote, he was going to execute Paul Heyman live on TV. Wow. <laughs> and I and I, I could I couldn't believe it, but that that that's exactly what he said, and that that was like something that was that that, that always kind of stuck out to me as far as what Tommy Dreamer said, but uh, but yeah, I, I do think he has uh, had a very successful career for himself. Yeah, because John, obviously, you know, sort of like fans look on Tommy Dreamer these days sort of like quite derogatorily, you know, with him still sort of like hanging around and, and wrestling and impact wrestling. But as far as ECW goes, he was involved in some of the sort of like the major angles, obviously talked about that Singapore, Singapore came match with Sandman. And then obviously the feud with Raven and a number of other storylines that he was involved in. Yeah. I remember actually talking about earlier the, the first show that I went to, which was the August of 96. And he was in the, the feud with Brian Lee at the time. And the past few shows, he'd been sort of choke slammed uh, off the, the stage, then choke slammed off the, the balcony, and it sort of escalated each month. And genuinely, people were going to the building that night under the impression he was going to get choke slammed off the roof of the building, which would have been absolutely lethal. Um, so um, it was always strange because he certainly, in the, the times that I was following it, was though he was always technically the top babyface, he was always the kind of the baby face that people weren't necessarily behind there was always it felt kind of quite forced and I think really his he was a kind of guy who he got over through longevity it was kind of he'd been there so long that like even if you you didn't necessarily like him when he was there he's kind of he'd become like the home team guy almost and sort of you know almost the, the mascot of the company and was sort of one of the very few people who was there for sort of almost the very start of uh, the Paul Heyman era right through to the, the final shows. And John, would you say that Tommy Dreamer kind of, well, the, the Tommy Dreamer character and the individual kind of kind of toughened, kind of toughened up or got, or got toughened up throughout the period of ECW and then like, I guess how side of fans kind of naturally gravitated towards him because they seen him uh, transition from, you know, go to the white, white me baby face into this 
tough guy ECW who represents, you know, what would the crowd still for? Do you think that's that's why people sort of gravitated towards them like progressively? Yeah, and I think definitely the fact that there was, you know, a, a definite element of realism because if the the idea was that you would have sympathy for or kind of uh, admire this guy for you know, the punishment he was taking were a lot of the punishment he's taking was it, <laughs> it wasn't wrestling punishment. I mean, it was, it was, you know, generally genuine sort of physical damage uh, right. and sort of toughness kind of building up. So I think really, you know, people would sort of come to kind of respect that he was, was definitely sort of, you know, a, a team player. And then we move on to someone else who was very, um, you know, influential in these early days of um, ECW coming in as, um, as he describes as um, a talent exchange. But then Tommy Dreamer describes as being involved in some kind of lawsuit, but they don't really go into depth in that. It's a uh, Cactus Jack. And obviously, you know, a dream match around the time was him against Sabu. And, and then that happened. And then obviously we had the infamous promo where he um, spat on the WCW tag belt, which didn't go down very well with Ric Flair, as Mick Foley explains in the documentary. You know, he couldn't quite see what he, he was trying to get over rather than denigrating the belt. He was trying to get Sabu over as the main guy in that promotion. And then it wasn't long until uh, Cactus Jack was in, in the promotion full-time. And um, he certainly, those promos are well-remembered by fans today, I think, uh, as well, John, as well as his WWE promos that he did as Mankind. I still think, especially that... Um, you know, one where he's denigrating the hardcore fans are still uh, fondly remembered by fans today. Yeah, I think that's uh, one of the places where, even though it's sort of almost a three-hour documentary, uh, that, that that there isn't kind of really enough time to explain it and, and put it into context. But the idea that was kind of Cactus was doing these these promos that were very, very much reality-based, that were sort of, you know, telling some very harsh truths about how fans kind of viewed him and um sort of the, the the price he sort of paid for his style and really kind of having this sort of like multi-dimensional thing where you sort of you were watching it you were like um these are really great promos but what makes it great is that he was telling the truth about sort of you know how bad we are for for what we expect from him and it kind of it, it it's not like a it's you know a normal sort of um black and white wrestling promo where it's just like you i'm a really good guy or like oh, i'm really bad and i hate you all the fans it's like there's there's a kind of a lot of truth to this and uh he was sort of doing all the things that push people's buttons so he was i mean there's one show he turned up who wears wearing like this uh t-shirt we made with like airbrushed eric bischoff's face on and all the dungeon <laughs> of doom characters um and he, he even had one match uh uh, against somebody where he deliberately just tried to have the most boring match ever and was just like literally put a headlock on and sit there for sort of five minutes while this crowd is just getting increasingly angry um, and like actually being played. And this is obviously an audience that likes to think it, it kind of understands like wrestling and how people sort of manipulate it. But the fact that when people do, is, is being done to him, it, it's still effective. I, I think one of the constants like that I noticed throughout the documentary is that like Paul Heyman kind of just let talents just be themselves. Mm. And, and and as far as like, even with like being the microphone is kind of like with people, just kind of just gave him the microphone and just say, go and just, you know, go out there and do what you do. And I think that's, I, I think that's something that should still be applied to this day. And of course, and of course we we've seen it uh, in some promotions and then in others is, you know, heavily scripted and you know they they like to kind of control what would get said or not but i think that's kind of the key is let these individuals find themselves and then eventually they'll bring you back gold if you let them kind of you know have some leeway and we've seen that like countless times throughout this 
uh, documentary. Like even I think one of the one one of the ones that kind of of course stood out, you know, was, was Stone Cold and you know seeing Mick Foley, of course, and then RVD and like how he mentioned like there was no need for him to tweak anything about RVD or try to add any extra gimmicks to his character. Like he's like people naturally gravitated to RVD as an individual, so there was nothing that needed to be added or needed to be taken away from it. Yeah, it seemed to be a great, especially for Mick Foley and like you know with their Steve Austin because I mean. Steve Austin was in ECW for literally a cup of coffee, but obviously Heyman convincing him, you know, he wasn't really known much of a talker in WCW, but Heyman convincing him to come over and just basically do a load of, of load of promos for them and the odd match really yeah. sort of like brought out that character in him, didn't it? And especially with Foley, he was allowed to hone a lot of his interviews, uh, his interview skills and, you know, tell his own stories that they wouldn't have been able to do in sort of WCW. And it is really interesting that it did... It was sort of like this honing ground for, um, you know, obviously Mick Foley and Steve Austin went on to be two of the biggest wrestlers in the world. And it was, you know, that they both came through this system. But I certainly think, John, uh, Austin's an interesting one, isn't he? Because he, he isn't there very long at all. But, you know, obviously Heyman's there convincing him to come out and, and be more of a talker and do these promos, especially... I think that must be one of the earliest um, skits I've seen where someone parodies a wrestler with Austin parodying Hulk Hogan here. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. For f- it's a, a case of sort of the time and the context in that nobody expected Steve Austin to be, you know, the biggest star in a generation along with Rock mm. and, you know, the sort of a, the new Hulk Hogan thing. But absolutely from the first year he was in the business, people thought he was going to be a big star because of his kind of his presence and his kind of natural ability in the ring. So he was like the ultimate example of, of somebody who... Uh, hadn't been used by to their full potential by WCW in the, the Hogan era. Uh, so he he was really a, a big deal coming in. And, and the fact that he was able to sort of show that he could talk, that he could have a personality. And the fact that then that sort of led to WWE that really was kind of a, a character once he got past the ringmaster that it became a stone cold that was so much of it was his kind of natural personality coming out and sort of being exaggerated and i think that's very much what the bcw kind of run that he had uh but it was again literally i think it was only two matches and mm. kind of a couple of months um but just to kind of have that uh sort of almost almost a self-belief to himself that he could show to himself that you know he could talk he could kind of um come across as a as kind of a real superstar and i think that it was a real uh a real confidence boost before he sort of inevitably went up to to wwf and and had his career there yeah martin did, did martin did you happen to catch uh like they, they show some of the clips from uh the, the steve austin ecw promo did you happen to catch like some of the like the key phrases and key words that would like later eventually like lead to him becoming like a a megastar in WWE that he was even saying back then, like I heard him, like he was, you know, using the bottom line phrase yeah. and stuff like that. And it, it was just cool to see, to see, cause I was like, that, that, I think that just really goes to show you like the, the creative, like thought process and, and then the mind that Steve Austin had at the time to be, you know, some of that stuff probably coming up with on the fly and just, mm. you know, coming up with it on a whim. So I, I think that's a huge credit to him uh, as, as far as like, you know, he, and then as John said, he, he probably had the thought in his head that he knew that he was probably going to be, you know, a, a big star, but just needed, you know, probably the right platform and, you know, just needed a, a extra kick. Yeah. And it's a shame that we don't seem to have a promotion like this. That's not sort of like, you know, completely mainstream, but enough fans know about it where, you know, people can go and hone the talent now before getting signed. It seems like people get signed way too quickly now, but um, 
They, they, they sort of cover Mikey Whitbreck in the documentary because obviously he was a huge part of um, ECW, certainly teaming with Texas Jack and having this gimmick of never getting an offensive move in and, you know, always being the underdog and the fans really gearing up and getting behind him before we move into what was one of the, the big angles at the time. But watching this from a UK standpoint and not really getting the lineage of the NWA or the NWA title um, sort of like was a bit lost on me watching at the time, but it's obviously where... They had this tournament for the NWA title and Shane Douglas accepts it at the end and then throws it down and coins the extreme championship wrestling and says that he's the new extreme championship wrestling heavyweight uh, champion. But And obviously we see Dennis Carluzzo being really offended by this in interview segments, calling it a disgrace and stuff. But um, this was a really big story at the time, wasn't it, John? I think it was quite lost on me as a, as a UK fan reading about and watching this. But as far as um, American independent wrestling, this was a, a really big story at the time. Yeah, I mean, so the NWA, even though it you know, hadn't really kind of promoted outside WCW, um, was still like a big name and was still uh, kind of associated with being the main opposition to, to WWE and having all the history um, and to, you know, have Douglas kind of not accept the NWA belt to kind of throw it away. And the fact that they clearly sort of double crossed uh, Carluzzo and, and, and his promotion, it really was, it was perfectly timed to kind of use that to launch ECW as becoming extreme championship wrestling and kind of, uh rebuilding itself was, was like really well done and really sort of this memorable moment and then it moves on and we start seeing when the sort of like your likes of Dean Malenko, Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit start coming into the promotion and have these mind-blowing matches. And uh, Andrew, that's, I think certainly, you know, some of the hardcore matches might not live up to today, but I certainly think um, Dean Malenko and Eddie Guerrero, um, we might have discussed that on a previous show. Um, that certainly is a match that um, holds up today and certainly, um, you know, that's a match that you can watch over and over again. Yeah, I definitely think that was probably key to... ECW continue, continuing to now I don't, I don't want to say last and put it off as if like like it was coming to an end at that point but I mean like as far as like ex- expanding the product like having more sort of the technical style focused in there and the pure wrestling I think that was like so, something that was just really different and of course it was stated throughout the documentary that it was something that was probably needed at the time to diversify from what was the key focus of ECW which was that hardcore style like uh, I know me and you and uh, Neil recently covered the Eddie Guerrero documentary and I had went back uh, after that, after we wrapped that podcast up and went back and we'll watch the, uh, the Dean Malenko Eddie match. And I think that was from the, um, the hostile city showdown show. I think that that was what it's called. And like I, that, that was like probably, pro- pro- probably one of my favorites that I watched as far as like from not matches from the nineties. Like I really enjoyed that. Um, and, and as far as ECW goes, like outside of the RVD Jerry Lynn stuff, which I thought was enjoyable as well. Um, but yeah, man, I, I think adding, you know, that's what we're what, what, what going to be, you know, the cruiserweights, style wrestling in WCW like I think that was very very key to you know diversifying that ECW product and then also um they have a little segment talking about the fans and um obviously a lot of the chants and they show the chants especially towards women don't sort of like um you know they don't hold up well at all no no at all (laughs) yeah and especially you know I know wrestlers are probably sick of hearing the you fucked up chant which seemed to um start at um ECW, but um, certainly well known for this rabid fan base um, in Philadelphia, John. Yeah, I think to an extent, uh, the ECW fan base in the ECW arena was certainly could be very harsh. 
Um, but I think to an extent it was more when they'd go on tour, particularly like the first time as they went to Florida, that you had sort of the fans there were like, oh, well, this is how we're meant to behave at an ECW show. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're just going to go for violence or just for sort of the offensiveness. Um, whereas actually at the, the arena, there was more sort of kind of a, an inside of things, sort of a kind of a relationship between the, the fans and the wrestlers. Um, but, you know, you wouldn't necessarily be offensive, but, you know, you didn't have to cheer for something just because it was the, you know, the baby face winning and, uh, if you didn't like the character, you didn't have to cheer for them. But I think certainly it was definitely a, a kind of promotion that took advantage of the fact that it had this regular venue, it had the, the kind of the regular fans, which at the time, uh, WWF and WW sort of both national and were sort of, you know, you might see them once or twice a year. Yeah, John, John, do you think that the ECW, like, the, the 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 like that ECW crowd like was a like wait if you have you have to give it like a certain percentage like what would you say like what part what percentage of the ECW crowd sort of like you know for, formulated the the ECW style and how people remember it to this day like if you had to give it like a certain percentage opposed to you know the, opposed to the in ring performances yeah I think it was um, certainly a, a big part of it was for yeah the the crowd was kind of definitely was you know for the cliche of being part of the show but mm-hmm. i think the interesting thing is of you know i've been to kind of wrestling in like a lot of places over sort of 30 years um and the ecw arena when i went there for there was a match with uh shane douglas and uh pitbull going for the tv title pitbull too and that was the absolute most invested, like non-ironic, genuinely wanting one person to win, getting upset when the other guy won, but I've ever seen any crowd. So it was kind of this willing suspension of disbelief. And this was uh, a day where not only that afternoon had uh, Pitbull and uh, Shane Douglas both been at sort of uh, the fan convention Q&A session talking about how they'd worked the angle and everything. And then before the show, they were both, uh, you know, well, fans were still going in they were in the ring uh kind of all sort of working together because they they opened up the crowd quite early so it was you know you, you'd literally seen that very day but it was going to be a performance but during the match they they still the crowd really kind of got into it wanting one guy to win and wanting the other one not to and sort of living and dying by the by the near falls it got kind of like continuing like on the you know the topic of the fans i think that you know, it, that, I think they were also kind of really rabid for ECW because like they like I, and, and there was like one point of the, the documentary that like really stood out to me was when Paul Heyman was like very open with the audience as far as like not lying to them about certain stuff that went mm-hmm. down. And, and I think that's you know another reason why the fans were like really invested because they they kind of, you know, they got the truth straight up. Like if something went down or you read something online you know, Paul Heyman would come out and address it. And like, I just think that like looking at that from 2021 eyes, I think that's a very like unique approach, uh, not going with the reality portion opposed to going with the storyline and not saying anything wrong with going with the storyline portion. But like, I feel like with even Paul Heyman being so open back then with the audience and like, of course the business is more exposed now than it was back then. But I just thought that was like a really, really interesting thing to do at the time to be so open with your audience to kind of, pulling the curtain back just a little bit more than, than it already was or that people already, you know, than what they already saw, what they already knew. And yeah, I think one else. thing you, you have to remember about the BCW arena and the kind of venues they ran is that it was kind of this absolute sweet spot where 
you know, it was you, you had the experience of being what felt like a really crowded, big crowd. It was like a, a big deal. But wherever you were in the building, you were probably at most 15 yards from the ring. So you could see everything was happening close up. You know, if there were any kind of holes in what was happening, you could see them. If, you know, there was sort of a, a mix up in communication, you could see any kind of holes mm. in it. Um, and you really had this sort of kind of real visceral feel as opposed to, uh, if you were sort of you know a ten thousand seat building watching WWF, where and unless you've got the first few rows, you can be you know up in the second tier watching sort of this this kind of big performance, as it were. But you're kind of you don't have that that real sort of physical thing of being right up close, seeing how hard they're hitting each other, and sort of you know almost seeing the sweat flying. Yeah, certainly a template that, uh, you know, a variety of indie promotions, especially over in the UK, have sort of like taken, you know, being closer to the ring, especially ICW and up in Scotland and uh, until they started doing their biggest shows in the Hydra, obviously. And that sort of like nightclub over 18s sort of thing, they really took that template that ECW set up and, and ran with it. But um, two people that we've not really mentioned yet and they were covered quite heavily in the documentary are Raven and Sandman, obviously Sandman. Earlier in the documentary gets that's covered quite a bit and they talk about his feud with Tommy Dreamer. Well, it's interesting, I thought virtually every segment, and this is obviously before the Benoit incident, has a woman, Nancy Benoit, by his side, and yeah. she doesn't get any play in this documentary whatsoever. Um, but I thought she was quite a pivotal pivotal character, um, you know, in the Sandman with Sandman, you know, in, in those feuds with Tommy Dreamer and the like. But then also they look at um, Raven and um Especially what's a really interesting story, and still today, it's still, I find it kind of uh, strange watching it where, um, you know, Raven has brainwashed Sandman's wife and um, his eight-year-old son <laughs> and just seen, I mean, the performance that Sandman's kid gives has been sort of like Raven's little lackey as Raven's doing that sort of cheeky laugh in these promos and stuff. He's, he's absolutely brilliant, Andrew. Still holds up today as such a great performance by this little eight-year-old kid. So, so that was my first time actually seeing this, and I was like, dude, this is just great TV, great, great wrestling right here. Like, this is great. Like, I like it, Raven, like, legit, Raven will never not be like one of the coolest wrestlers to me. Like, he just had that vibe, and I'm like, like, uh, and I, I had another point I want to make, but I want to ask you, you and John, actually, like, was was Raven like kind of that cool, like, as, as he appeared to be, like, you know, w- watching it in real time? Oh, yeah, definitely. Because also, prior to this, he'd been um, a character called Scotty Flamingo in WWF, basically an announcer, and he couldn't be any far further from this Raven character, could he, John? No, and I think, you know, kind of in, in real life also was kind of very different to kind of his character, but he sort of really went to it, and it was it was definitely kind of all of its era. It was like, you know, the the grunge character, the dark character, the... the you know, absolutely ridiculous storyline when you think of it, the idea that, you know, <laughs> he went to summer camp with all these people and, you know, brought them back. And also the fact that he would be sat there completely stoic while there was this, you know, utter lunacy going around him with, you know, the BWO or whatever, or sort of the, the blue meanie, but dressed up as Kiss or whatever. Um, and I think he he kind of really had kind of his own style of, of matches, particularly there, there were times where he had kind of injury or sort of personal problems where he was like not physically able to, to work a sort of traditional match. And if he was fighting the Sandman, there's only so much you can do as a traditional match with him, but he'd really have a style where there'd be, you know, a hundred different things going on in the match where people doing run-ins. So, you know, there'd be, be sort of all these surprises going on, um, 
really sort of uh, explored kind of the different ways of doing a match. You know, some people would be, it would just be a brawl everywhere. Some people would have a sort of, you know, a technical match then. He, he'd really have the sort of, you know, the, all the different interference and the different characters and sort of the twists and turns that way. Yeah, like, uh, Martin, like if, if you would put Raven back then in today's landscape of professional wrestling, do you think that he would probably be like one of the more popular characters just because of the, you know, the stoic kind of, loner type character do you think that raven would really fit in like really well and people would like really uh, gravitate towards that style of character like just as far as today's fans go oh yeah definitely i mean you can certainly see shades of raven in the likes of darby allen or someone like that Mm -hmm. and you know and fans are always going to gravitate to a character like that and certainly you know and obviously he was getting you know he probably wasn't in the position he wanted to be in WCW, but certainly the stories he told around him and, and DDP and, and with the flock, and that was certainly some good stuff that they were doing in, in WCW. But of course, we can't talk about uh, Raven and Sandman without talking about the uh, the crucifixion and uh, Raven's idea of crucifying Sandman. And obviously, they talk in the documentary about how Kurt Angle was uh, backstage at this show and even made an appearance in the ring, and he still... Watching the documentary, you could see how furious he was that, you know, he'd yeah. even been associated with anything to do with this. And obviously they show the footage of Raven coming out and apologizing uh, in case anyone was offended. So it seems that, you know, as extreme as ECW was, John, perhaps, um, you know, this angle was even too extreme for some of the fans there. Yeah, and I think uh, the sort of first time this documentary came out, that was sort of one of the strong points. Was there were bits of footage like that, but it's obviously never never aired before. So sort of seeing these was was quite uh, quite interesting. It's very noticeable that um, when Raven comes out to make the apology, he's very clear that it, it's Scott Levy who's making the apology, not Raven, because I think mm. he hated the idea that you know the Raven character would never apologise for anything that he did. <laughs> I, I think one of the more uh, interesting things, like just to ponder on, would have been like had, had Kurt Angle joined ECW at the time. Like, what, what like how would his? I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to think that his career would have turned out any differently than it would have. He probably would have went on the same path. But I would have been interested to see like how things would have panned out as far as like who he'd have been paired with, some of the things that he could have been doing uh, if he would have had an, a, like an extended or like a, a long run or maybe like a two, three year run in ECW, like how things would have kind of turned out for Kurt. I suppose it would have been similar to Austin and Mick Foley, wouldn't it? It would have been, you know, a place to hone his character a bit more before going over to uh, WWE. And he certainly would have had a cracking matches with sort of like, you know, you know, you like to do Malenko and people like that. Yeah. But um, it's certainly interesting watching that angle back now and all the fury it got, because I don't think I even found it that shocking at the time. But, you know, I suppose it depends what mindset and your upbringing and things like that, doesn't it? But um, also in the documentary around this point, they talk about how, you know, WWE first started realizing how big ECW was when they did that um, awful King of the Ring 1995 when King Mabel won. And and it's funny because when you watch these things and you have Tommy Dreamer saying, oh, the whole arena was chanting ECW. And I was like, they probably weren't. And then they cut to the <laughs> footage and they actually most of them were. And it was funny. I do remember reading about that at the time in Power Slam. And then also, I think it happened at a Slamboree event, John, in, uh, for WCW. And I think it was a Sting Vader match and all the crowd was chanting ECW. And it, it's sort of like this the fans were willing to go this extra mile, weren't they, to even go to a WWF show and chant ECW. And then when they talk about the pay-per-view, that it was the audience emailing all the New York stations just to get them any kind of TV exposure. Yeah, I think uh, that, that King of the Ring show, I mean, to say it was 
you know, it was just they put Mabel out there. They they had Savio Vega wrestle four times. You had to what, and then he didn't even win the tournament. <laughs> you you had Mabel on either two or three times. You you had a bracket that made it strongly look like you would get a Shawn Michaels Undertaker match, which you know at the time would have would have been an absolutely amazing sort of selling point. And in the end, you actually got Shawn Michaels dressed in karma for fifteen minutes. Um, and you had a show where it ended half an hour early. Uh, Sid walks out of a main event and nobody complained, but it was too short. So it was, <laughs> you know, it, it was not just a bad badge. It was sort of a, a legendary badge, bad show in, in a venue where the, the ringside fans were not going to forgive you for that. And then obviously they also show um, when, especially around the time of ECW's first pay-per-view that, um, you know, WWE were allowing, um, ECW talents come and you know and be ringside at the show and you see sort of like uh, some man spitting beer on Savio Vega and I remember that was big news for sort of like the likes of sort of like me and you John that were uh, reading Power Slam and the like but I suppose for fans who were just watching WWF because this is sort of pre-internet exploding all over the world I imagine it was quite confusing. Yeah I mean it was obviously it was a thing that was uh, not concentrated on much by WWE on presentation, which which made sense really because you know if, if something like that really happened, you'd you'd probably cut the cameras away and and not mention it at all. But I think it was quite interesting the way that Vince was sort of trying to put it over as he wanted to help ECW grow and, and uh, have sort of exposure. And I think certainly when they they put them on the TV, it was very much about the idea of well, this is something that's going to you know, attract fans, kind of raise the, the interest and, and people might watch it instead of Nitro because this was probably six to eight months into the the period of, of Nitro outdrawing Raw every week. So they were really, it was a, a win-win for both. The idea of just looking for anything different that was going to attract fans. And this is, you know, an era they were definitely experimenting with different things. You just have the, the AAA involvement. So you'd have kind of AAA guys on. Uh, they were trying stuff out with uh, Shotgun Saturday Night, which was originally was in venues like nightclubs and so on, sort of a more adult style. So it was very much a period where uh, WWF were very open to anything that would be like a little bit different and might get some attention. Yeah, what was really interesting about like this portion uh, the documentary was like, I immediately remembered uh, that RBD had told the story. Like, I think it was a few weeks back. Uh, he had said that during this period, um, like uh, like literally probably the second or third instance of like the ECW invasion, uh, he and Sabu had been brought into Vince McMahon's office and Vince had made it clear that, you know, he intended on bringing RVD to WWF and like he kind of made like a little point. It was like, I, you wouldn't be here if I didn't intend on, you know, having you come here. Mm. And he threw, threw RVD a contract, threw him a number and he turned it down because RVD was of the mindset that ECW was there to, you know, promote ECW only. And this wasn't going to yeah. be some type of thing where he was going to end up as a member of the WWE roster, or WWF roster. So I think that was like a, that, that, that was like a real interesting, you know, thing to kind of remember at that point was that Vince man tried to, you know, try to get convince RVD to, you know, jump ship at that time. Yeah, and I suppose a lot of talent, especially with WWF around that time, were probably scared of losing their, uh, you know, as much as the money might have been exciting. You know, it's like we pointed out before in ECW, they were allowed to, you know, come up with their own stories and be themselves. Yeah. So I suppose you were losing that signing with uh, WWF and maybe becoming a, a silly character. But back onto the pay-per-view, and obviously Heyman states in the documentary, you know, they had to make more money and obviously make themselves more legitimate and, and you know, 
they seemed to be this big run-up and fans were like aching for them to have a, a big pay-per-view event. And um, and then obviously we go into the infamous mass transit incident with them losing the pay-per-view. Um, you know, Ooh, long boy. story short, Axel <laughs> Rotten no-showed the show, so they substituted him with underage Eric Coolis, who went as mass transit, and then New Jack, you know, decided to cut him open in the ring. And obviously, you know, in ECW law and, and Heyman saying, you know, his dad was with him and they thought that he was 23 years old and, you know, he, he said they'd been trained by Killer Kowalski and, and that was good enough for Paul Heyman. So I suppose it all depends on, on your opinion on that one. But Andrew, I suppose, is this the first time you've heard of this incident and what are your thoughts on sort of like how we, how they laid it out in the documentary? No, so it, it, it was because um, I know they, they dove deep into this and New Jack's dark side of the ring. And this and, and that like I kind of got my like full briefing of like the entire situation. Uh, I, I I think you would kind of pick or choose like as far as like what you want to believe as far as like if they knew his age and stuff like that or maybe that was like just you know something that just kind of to get them off and like uh it, 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 I think that was very much of a situation of like just like I I genuinely like do not even know how to even like react to it still. Like it's like it's just it's a lot that happened within that, within all that, and then like even hearing New Jack's recount of the situation, and he kind of just laughed it off, like mm-hmm. like you know like nothing happened. That that's just a, that seems like that's just a New Jack thing, and like this this thing was like dragged to court and stuff like that. And uh, if I, if I'm not mistaken, I, I I hope I'm not mistaken to say, but Eric Kulas he passed away, didn't he? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. So yeah, that was it, it, like I I got like. Even just like initially hearing about it, like through the dark side of the ring thing, I kind of felt bad for his family. But like at the same time, it's like one of those things. Of like if I'm wondering, like if they, if, if those at, at be the powers at be at ECW, like really knew his age, or like did they just relay the message that he knew he was, uh, they they he he said that he was 23 and stuff to kind of you know just it it was just a lot within that that whole thing. Yeah, definitely, and I think also, um, John, you know. It's sort of a bit of a cowboy move, you know, not just to take this these people on the word out, I think. Also, I think that's all also something of a distraction technique because as far as I understand it, it's not okay to take a 23-year-old and, you know, slice their head open with a scammer. Yeah. But um, I think, like, kind of the documentary, it kind of comes across as they had to cover this because you couldn't leave it out because it's a part mm. of the story, but they kind of did the, the bare minimum possible and obviously weren't going to show any footage, but it's, it's kind of thing you look back on and you kind of imagine what it would be like now, because at the time it, it became a big deal because the, the video was released and sort of a few copies have been sent out before they kind of realized this is going to be a problem. We need to cut this footage and by then it was too late. But if something like that happened now, it's literally going to be on the internet 10 seconds after oh, it's yeah. happened. Mm. Um, and you can imagine, you know, they were quite a small company at the time, but if, if, if they were, you know, trying to get sponsorship or anything like that, this is, you know, is it's kind of big news straight away. It's, it's kind of all over the world and the world would have seen it in a few moments. It would have been very interesting to see what the response would have been in kind of a modern age. Yeah, I, I definitely think if like if you put ECW in today's landscape and if that something like that would have happened, I, I think that any even idea of them being on uh, even something is like a streaming platform would have been downsized immediately. Or the, the chances of them getting onto a platform would have been downsized immediately just because that footage, like you said, John, it would have been spread like wildfire, like it would have been out there instantly. 
Yeah, and I also think, you know, Heyman wouldn't have a chance in Hella begging the pay-per-view companies to reconsider as they did here, you know, they don't <laughs> want to be touching him with the bar fall, would they? But um, obviously they use uh, WWE again to uh, help promote this pay-per-view. What's interesting, I think this is the first time we see Jerry Lawler in this documentary. Obviously, he's synonymous with, you know, running down ECW on commentary and talking about the bingo hall and stuff. And it seems like Lawler, that's his genuine thoughts on, you know, he said, why would it, you know, WWE bringing in, you know, ECW and letting them run over his show? And he's wondered why they gave time to their competition. And obviously, Vince is there saying, oh, because it's going to help the ECW brand. But it genuinely does feel like Lola was like confused as to why they were letting ECW talent come into WWE, John. Yeah, it's quite strange because he's sort of here in like February 97, uh, you know, saying how, you know, ECW is such a tiny thing. It's just running in a bingo hall. Well, February 1997, I saw Jerry Law at a main eventing in the Forest City, Arkansas Community Centre. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. And there were probably about 120 people there. So... <laughs> I think you know he's he he may be the only person who's sort of a legitimate you know wrestling server hall of famer who's also appeared in front of you know ten thousand people and a hundred people, um, but yeah, I mean he certainly was able to do that. And I think um, he ha- had employed Paul Heyman in sort of the the eighties as a manager, and I think there may have been a, a little bit of, of kind of bad blood there. But he was definitely able to when he came into to ECW to kind of do the angles there, was able to kind of turn that uh, whatever legitimate sort of uh, bad blood wear into kind of a promotional tour and, and knew what would kind of upset and rile up the, the fans in ECW. I can't believe Lawler's still working the independent scene too. Mm. Like I, can't, I, can't, I can't believe it. Yeah, I know, yeah. Um, but um, onto the pay-per-view itself, Barely Legal, obviously the first big pay-per-view for uh, ECW, and obviously this is heavily covered in uh, Beyond the Mat, you know, we see all the behind-the-scenes stuff and the brilliant sort of like, you know, rallying of the troops uh, promo that um, Paul Heyman gives them. And Devon notes in this documentary that everyone was scared to death of the pay-per-view because they knew they had one shot, and I think this is quite obvious in some of the matches you know everyone looks a bit nervous some of the missed time spots and that and in the documentary they talk about rbd against lance storm and then you know the big blow off of taz against sabu and then the main event terry funk sandman and stevie richards uh, a three-way to determine a number one contender and uh i mean john as a as a whole remembering back at the time was um barely legal um, a bit of a disappointment after watching so much good ecw um over the years yeah i, mean, I think um for a lot of people, this in ECW, this was the first time they'd ever wrestled on live television. So that was certainly a, a different thing. Um, you know, some of the matches didn't live up to kind of expectations, particularly uh, Shane Douglas Pitbull was was far too long for the kind yeah. of match that it was. Um, but it, it was still, it was kind of not so much what happened on the show was important as the, the fact that happened. And it really was, it was like ECW, it was like the bit in the storyline where the, the baby face wins for world title. It was the fact that it happened, kind of gave it this uh, legitimacy. And in, in a way, uh, they sort of you know, struggled a little bit to be the underdog after that because they had got to that level and now they were on the pay-per-view scene at least were competitors to WCW and, and uh, WWE. Off the top of your head, can you remember how well it did as a first pay-per-view in terms of buys and things? I think if I remember, it did something like about 40,000. Um, 
but partly that was because they were only on a few systems. So I think it was kind of the equivalent of it would have been around sort of 80 to 90,000. I think it would have, had they been on every system and done the sort of same percentage of buyers, they would have made a, a decent profit on the show. So it was kind of successful in, in that regard. And then they're moving on, obviously, Funk uh, beats Raven for the title and then Raven's moving on to WCW. And um, we finally see Tommy Dreamer sort of uh, defeating Raven and then lights go out and Jerry Lawler's in the ring and they, and they kicked off a new feud with, with Lawler, which was um, a sort of perfect, um, perfect way to, well, not replace Raven, but to, you know, distract the fans uh, from Raven leaving. I thought, Andrew, you know, obviously Jerry Lawler would be hated in by the yeah. <laughs> fans, so perfect way to sort of distract from Raven leaving and, and, and bring him in. Because this was really hot at the time, you know, getting Lawler out there and, um, you know, the fans really were baying for blood with him in the ring. Yeah, and, and and as you uh you you heard him mention a documentary he had to jet immediately because the so some people some people was trying to catch him after the show. Yeah. But yeah, man, <laughs> but yeah, like I think like you said, like it was the perfect way to kind of distract people from Raven leaving. Like I think the the perfect offset was how much people hate Jerry Lawler, and so they you know they they slotted him in there, and it, and it obviously it worked to to get people's attention from you know from Raven leaving. I think it's uh, one thing that was disappointing in the, the documentary that they don't cover here is that um, not only do they have like the end of the match go straight into the, the Laura invasion angle, but actually that Laura angle ends up with Sabu and Taz in the ring. They then have a, a rematch from Barely Eagle where this time I think Sabu wins, um, but then leaves Taz in the ring and then he calls out Shane Douglas, who's a TV champion, and Taz beats Shane Douglas in a couple of minutes to win the title. And this sort of whole thing has been, this was a, a thing that ECW did a lot. Um, it was almost uh, kind of taken away from, from the Mid-South era, which was very different to sort of WWF, WCW would have kind of a setup where everything was self-contained. So you'd have Hulk Hogan would have his feud and somebody else would have their feud and somebody else would be in this storyline and they never sort of crossed. Whereas ECW, a lot of the times the storylines would kind of blend into each other. It kind of created this, you know, this like they're all in the same universe and you'd have this quite often this thing with a sequence of something leads into another angle into another angle into another storyline and this particular one was uh, about an just under an hour or so of kind of action continuously in the thing and actually condensed it down into uh, a single tv episode and paul Heyman later said that was his absolute favorite tv episode that he'd ever produced uh, you, yeah. you mentioned uh, the, the the Sabu and, and Taz match from the '97 Barely League. With like, just, just, like of course, I didn't get the chance to like see it, like uh, you know, like see it all play out. But like, just from seeing like the the, the documentaries cut of it, like I, I found that like one of the more like interesting storylines as far as like, cause it's so simple. Like as far as like one guy tries to call another guy, or he re- repeatedly denies and like repeatedly doesn't answer. And then like, when you finally have them to go face to face, the whole crowd goes crazy. And I was like, that's like one of the most simple yet effective storylines for something that doesn't involve a championship. Like, I'm like, that's like, that's, that's like grade a right there. Like, is it just so, it's so simple and you don't even need anything or any other catalyst to, to make people invested in it's just some like something so simple. Yeah, because that was a huge match that fans were wanting at the time, wasn't it, John? So we were against Taz, and for whatever reason, they sort of like held it off until this um, until this pay per view. Yeah, I mean, I think it was you know they they went a year without touching at all, and then when they did, it was the uh, thing where the lights went out and Sabu came back on and Sabu's in ring with Taz. Then what I don't think they quite got across in the documentary is that they 
they sort of stare at each other and the crowd's just going absolutely crazy. Mm. They go into just about lock up and start fighting and the lights go out again. And when they come back, uh, I think either Sabre or Taz had, had kind of left. So they'd literally been, been teased with it. And uh, though the world title match was on last, this was absolutely the, the main event of the pay-per-view mm-hmm. and sort of the most anticipated match. And I kind of remember at the time, people were like not quite sure how to respond for a match because Nobody really knew what it was going to be because it was two completely different styles. Um, you know, Sabu was kind of a crazy hardcore going through tables, like the you know the triple jump moonsault or anything. And and Taz was very much it was it was all about sort of you know the suplexes, the MMA style. And it's kind of a match. I think at the time it kind of felt a bit like this is kind of a bit of a weird kind of uh, missed match. It's kind of a, not quite clunky, but kind of like a a, a bit messy. But I think it's the kind of match you kind of look back now and compare to the modern style. And it's like, well, this it feels like it's it's got more of an edge. It's not smooth, but it's it it certainly doesn't feel like you know two guys cooperating because there was always that kind of uh legitimate tension between them where um it's it's gonna be uh, sort of a a strange uh, comparison here, but the Mick McManus and Jackie Palo, who were two the two leading heels of British wrestling in the 1960s, um and they kind of had this thing where, you know, they didn't hate each other, but they weren't friends. And there was this kind of slight kind of uh, sort of professional rivalry between them. That that little bit of sort of niggle between them really kind of shone through in the match. And I think that kind of happens with, with Sabu and Taz, where it's this kind of thing where they're working together for the sake of the match, but they're also both kind of trying to keep themselves strong and kind of put themselves over. Yeah, I think, and also fans obviously, you know, could tell that as well, couldn't they? And that's why they were anticipating this match. You could tell, you know, maybe there was some real life heat between the two. And I think, you know, that bled into the story. And that's why fans were anticipating that match so much. Um, next up in the documentary, they talk about, you know, I remember it being a big story at the time that Todd Gordon um, was sort of like, uh, you know, putting Bischoff and Terry Taylor in touch with ECW talent. And Heyman says that, you know, he didn't seem to know what was going on and sort of like he stayed on just as a figurehead in the company and then and then eventually firing him. And, um, and he was about to fire the referee, Bill Alfonso, but, um, you know, some of the wrestlers asked him to keep him on. And then they talk about um, Bill Alfonso, Beulah McGuilty and, and Paul Heyman saying that that was the best intergender match in history. I mean, that's quite the claim <laughs> that Heyman was making there, Andrew. Yeah, the the, the best intergender match in history. John, would you... Would you uh... But would you say that that was one? Well, let, let, let's let's keep it at that specific time period. Up to that point, would you say that was one of the better uh, intergender matches that you had seen? Yeah, I mean, I don't. I'd actually seen many intergender matches at the time that <laughs> you know weren't my, mainly played for comedy. A lot of them sort of intergender at, at that time, sort of you know the Andy Kaufman kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, that was it was kind of match where just there was so much blood, and it was it was. Uh, a valet and a referee uh, manager um, doing the same kind of stuff you'd expect from kind of the traditional wrestlers. Uh, so yeah, it was, it, it was maybe not, you know, the greatest technical match ever. It was definitely very heated and sort of certainly over delivered. Yeah. Cause it's, um, we've not really talked about uh, many of the uh, sort of like female competitors or, or valets or, or whatever in ECW, but there was certainly a number over the years, obviously we had, you know, Bueller McGuilty was the, uh, the main one at the start and then Kimona, obviously in the documentary, they looked at when, you know, the whole soap opera angle of uh, Tommy Dreamer and, you know, Beulah saying she was pregnant and then revealing that she was actually seeing Kimona and then obviously Francine later on and Dawn Marie. And um, yeah. I suppose, you know, 
it's it's very much of the time, but, you know, a lot of them were involved in storylines and things. But I think um, for the most of it, you know, they were sort of seen as eye candy, I think, John. Yeah, I believe that definitely was one of the things in the the documentary that you watched. It's like, oh, my goodness, that really does not hold up. The idea yeah. that you know, Tommy Dreamer finds out that his girlfriend is, you know, sleeping with another woman and his response is, oh, it's OK, I'll take both of them. It's like, yeah, that's not quite how consent works. You need to ask her as well. Yeah, um, and also the fact that he's quite there. happy to say that, you know, that was the first lesbian angle in wrestling. It's like, yeah, but what from a, a male gaze it certainly is. Yeah, and certainly you have the idea that, you know, it got them thrown off every television channel they had was uh, one of the, the bigger exaggeration film. It certainly, you know, they did lose a TV station in Florida, but uh, they, they certainly didn't lose all of their television over it. So I think that was more kind of uh, rewriting history. But yeah, it's kind of thing you kind of look, you know, at the time there was very little around, wrestling around. The fact that, you know, there was other than the very early years and um, sort of the pre Heyman era, there were no women's women's matches at all. And it was very much a, a male uh, oriented promotion kind of aimed particularly at, uh, at males. And yeah, that's probably the, the thing that really holds up the least, I think from that era. Yeah. So, something that I was like kind of really surprised that they didn't bring up was uh, when jazz was brought into ECW. That, that, that was kind of like one of the things I was like, I'm surprised because especially during the time that this documentary made, I think the year prior to this documentary release, and she was like in one of the marquee uh, matches at WrestleMania. And even mm. the year prior, she was, um, I think she was on before the uh, the Austin Rock, I mean, Austin Hogan, I mean, I say Austin Hogan, Rock Hogan match uh, yeah. at 17. So yeah, it was kind of interesting that they didn't bring, bring up uh, Jazz's uh, running ECW. Yeah, I thought it, I know obviously we talked that it's quite a long documentary, but I, I did think there might have been um, sort of like a, a little section about talking about sort of Lita was in there as Miss Congeniality and then, you know, uh. like just noted their jazz and some of the other females that they had in there, you know, apart from just touching them on them lightly. So it's a shame that they didn't have sort of like a little section focusing on those people. But I suppose moving on, the documentary goes more in sort of like, you know, the behind the scenes and the business side, because um, we see Bubba Ray Dudley here talking about how he became involved behind the scenes doing deals with arenas and Taz being in charge of merchandise, Stevie Richards handling the fan line and, and things like that. And then talking about Paul Heyman's creativity and, you know, Bubba has the perfect line saying he's like the David Koresh of wrestling. It, certainly Andrew seems like, you know, if you were a wrestler there, you know, you were interested in becoming involved in behind the scenes because everyone was behind Heyman and, you know, his vision of wrestling. Yeah, Heyman definitely. Uh, I mean, I I think that was probably a, but I mean, it, it, like just from how they presented in the documentary, it really seemed like he had a choice, but it just seemed like one of the more smarter things to have people who you already work with uh, assume those positions. Uh, and, and it seemed like, you know, looking at it now, it did kind of really work out because I think Billy Ray had sort of a, a I want to say like sort of a similar role in Ring of Honor for a period of time. Of course, we mentioned earlier, Tommy Dreamer is a booker at Impact Wrestling. And uh, yeah, I don't know what, what much of uh, Stevie Richards is doing right now. Uh, but like, it, 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 I think that was a, I think that was a, a smart move on Heyman's part. Like, again, like I think he didn't really have a, a much of a choice because they, you know, they kind of talked about how, you know, couldn't go out and like, uh, get, get this person to do this so he you know he mentioned that he didn't want to um it was one part he mentioned that he they they the network had asked for like a a different director or something like that and Hammond wanted to stick with the people that were already with him and he didn't want to go out and you know kind of swap people out and you know kind of I guess sort of do them dirty for for lack of better terms 
And yeah, I, I, again, I just think that was a, a good move, and it, it benefited a lot of the talents. Uh, I think in the long in the long term, it did. Yeah, because John, you, you mentioned before how um, you know the fans were certainly you know it wasn't just an individual wrestler; it was the whole promotion that they were so passionate about. And it certainly seems like that then bled into the wrestlers as well, because you know, especially to this day, I mean, you you have the likes of uh, Bubba Ray Dudley, sort of like talk about ECW as being one big family. And it certainly seemed like Heyman had this sort of like magic touch where he could convince everyone that, you know, they all needed to get behind him and support this thing. Yeah, I mean, actually, that was a a necessity because there was no way at this point that ECW could compete on on price uh, for sort of paying wrestlers. So you kind of had to kind of make them feel like they were appreciating ECW in a way they wouldn't be elsewhere. And... It's, it's really, it was kind of working the, the, the wrestlers as much as the fans into this thing mm. of it, it's us against the other people. And, you know, you've you've got to kind of try hard for any match. You've got to prove to these other promotions that are sort of not taking you, that, you know, they're wrong to do so and kind of getting the, the best out of people that way. Yeah, definitely. Especially when we come to later when they're talking about paychecks bouncing and things like that and them still, um, you know, wanting to work, especially when you read the uh, amounts of money that people are around. But, um, now, Martin, I was going to mention, I was like one of the kind of, I guess one of the kind of cooler things was uh, finding out that they had a, a, a wrestle school, like one of, I guess it was it was called the House of Hardcore Wrestling School and mm. then seeing how, you know, Tommy Dreamer went on to uh, present. And st- I think he's, I don't know if he's still presenting it, but like he's still doing the uh, House of Hardcore Wrestling promotion. So I think that was like a little, you know, a cool uh, little tidbit that they threw in there that I, I didn't know that ECW had a uh, had a wrestling school. And, you know, it, it, it seemed like the it, it was more so towards the end there. It was just more so of a Paul Heyman. It, it, like we, we've heard plenty of stories how convincing Paul Heyman can be as far as using his words. And it just seemed like it was more so of like he just was able to get these people to just buy into us against the world. Like, mm. I need y'all to stay with me, assume these positions and let's try to keep this thing afloat and let's try to do this thing. And they, they bought into it and, you know, they, some of them, some more than others wrote it out like to the very end or wrote it out as long as they could before, you know, until, you know, it, it's just some better that came along that you just can deny. Well, I, I did enjoy Lance Storm being one who was like, nope, I'm, I'm a professional. I need to be paid on time yeah, if yeah. I'm not paid on time. That's, that is so on brand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He was one of the few, weren't he? Cause obviously we then go into it sort of like a segment about the Dudleys and them being the, you know, most hated tag team. And, um, you know, Heyman says people paid to see the Dudleys get beat up because they could really rile this um, crowd up and, you know, in some of the sort of more flashier spots they had lighting the table on fire, putting balls Mahoney through it. And, and Bubba says they were trying to incite riots wherever they went, even though that they went a little too far at Heatwave 99, you know, and um, insulting the in the Hawaiian shirt and, you know, woman who taught her daughter how to suck dick. And it's just, I mean, it was just, it just unreal how Bubba and D1 could like get these crowds. So like uh, wound up John. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely an irony in them talking about, you know, Bubba Ray being the the one who booked the buildings because um, it's probably the Dudleys were, you know, most responsible for having problems booking buildings again Mm. um, from, you know, causing damage. And, it's 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 a tough one really because it's it's well remembered but i think there's an argument of you know how much actual talent does it take to rile up a crowd by just insulting them mm. um and you know any anybody could necessarily do that and and whether or not that is something that that helps the promotion that you know drives up business is, is something that's kind of quite hard to prove 
It, it, it was one particular spot when uh, 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 Bully Ray was like, he was like, yeah, you, you was like, you fat ball motherfucker in the crowd. And then the dude on commentary was like, how do he know his name? I was like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I, was like, I was like, they ruthless, man. <laughs> well, you're funny, you've had some of the content, and obviously Joey Styles there. I was going to bring him up for the end, but we'll bring him up now. Obviously, synonymous with ECW, and you know, him going crazy over calls and the oh my god, and things like that. And um, at the time, I thought it was great, but I suppose uh, sometimes I, I listen back now and he seems to great on me. But I suppose going back there and listening to some of these calls now, uh, Andrew, and you brought one up there. I mean, how, how do you think um, Joey Styles uh, stands up with what you're hearing today in, in terms of commentary? In, in terms of today, you know, I, I do feel like Joey Styles. So I, I think an accurate or somewhat accurate thing to say would be like, would you say that Joey Styles kind of parallels to what we have now with Moro Ronaldo in a way? Would you say that's like kind of, I don't want to say that's like on par, but like it's kind of like just the enthusiasm and the excitement levels and just the constant uprising of their voices like they 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 were always got kind of brought the excitement to to the product, but like there were some comments there that was kind of like, eh, you know, I don't think you I don't think you should be saying that. But again, that was a, you know, a, a different time. But still, like I remember even um I think it was later in the documentary when Paul Heyman I think it was his first time on Raw, and then he you know made a certain comment about Trish Stratus, and then you know mm-hmm. he said the people in the headset were just going ballistic, like yeah, what are you doing? Like you can't say that on TV. Like we live right now, and they had to you know cover it up and stuff like that, but. Yeah, I, I think I think Joey Styles. I think he was a great commentator for ECW when he made the transition yeah. to WWE. It, it, it I, I just don't think it worked really well because he's he he commands the announce desk when he's there. Like, and I think you need people to kind of like follow suit, and but they put people next to him that have their own personalities on commentary and stuff like. So it it, it just never really mixed well. But for ECW, I think he was you know rightfully so like the perfect fit for you know you know for for that product. Yeah, I think, I think uh, Andrew with the nail there, didn't he, John? Because uh, we certainly got found out when it was sort of like more of a two-man booth and he certainly worked a lot better on his own. Yeah, and also, um, obviously, other than pay-per-views, he was doing a one-hour show and it was a one-hour show that had, you know, a lot of mix-up in the, the format. So you would have um, quite a long breaks between kind of the matches that he was calling or he'd be doing... Uh, sort of a, a voiceover on uh, sort of highlight packages. So I think it's, it's definitely a style that you'd look at it back when, kind of look at it for today's hours and realise you you would not want that for a, continuously for a two or three hour TV show, which is what you kind of have to have from uh, commentators now. But again, it's very much a, a right place, right time, and being a, being a different to how announcers were who were sort of very smooth, were telling the company line, not acknowledging any other promotions. Um, but yet he's still, you know, putting over the baby faces, kind of uh, showing his contempt for the heels and everything. Still, in a way, still doing a traditional kind of announcer's job. And then in the documentary, we move on to them talking about sort of like the financial woes, you know, Spike, you you know, the Lance Storm comment there a minute ago, John, and then obviously Spike Dudley saying why he's wondering why nowadays that he stuck around with the checks bouncing and, you know, Tommy Dreamer saying that he didn't get paid for six months. And then Jeez. eventually this, you know, they feel like they've had this miracle handed to them with the TNN TV deal, it, you know. It seems like so much starts happening towards the end of the documentary. They get the TNN deal, which, you know, they say alleviated some of the problems but only created new ones. You know, Vince is even on here saying he thought it would be great for business, congratulating him 
Um, and even saying that, you know, he, he told Heyman that they'd have to change to survive, which I don't think Heyman wanted to do because they didn't change. Taz leaves around this time. And it just seems like as much as they keep trying to get over every hill onto the other side, John, it just seems like more problems are over the other side for them. Yeah, so really the thing with, with ECW was though it was always a money loser, that was not necessarily, you know, a fatal problem. It was the the fact that they had to keep expanding and the way that works with the cash flow. So basically, yeah, when they started out, they were a tiny promotion, but like any other promotion, the idea was, you know, draw as much money as you can from selling the tickets and then make absolutely certain that you spend less than that um, and, and you're going to survive, you'll be all right. Uh, and as soon as they started kind of growing from that, they always had to keep growing. They were always like, what's the next step to grow? Is it going to be sort of pay-per-view? Is it going to be getting on national TV, getting sponsorship deals, making money from all these sort of different areas? Um, putting guys under full-time contract was a, a big thing because, uh, but, you know, originally people work once a week and then twice a week. Um, then once you start running, you know, you can maybe get away with sort of Friday, Saturday and Sunday, Beyond that, you've got to pay people a full time a full time uh, wage if you want them to wrestle sort of four times a week. Um, and every time they they did something to expand to increase their income, the problem is that the costs come straight away. The money comes later, so they were always, you know, spending to the money to do the pay per view. But it's not for like sort of two or three months before you get the money from the pay per view. Um, spending money on the production for the TV. So it was always, it was going to crash at some point. It was just kind of how big they were at the, the point when sort of the, the, the money caught up to them. But it's it's amazing to look back at it today and realise that, you know, people remember ECW is like crashing in this, uh, you know, massive uh, amounts of loss. Um, and you actually look at the money and the money that WWE gets paid for one episode of Raw and SmackDown in a week is more money than ECW lost in its entire existence. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly yeah. a different time, isn't it? As a, you always, I, I always wondered about this uh, this story. I think Paul Heyman, he uh, commented on it on Twitter a couple of years ago, the, the story about him supposedly go, going to like make some deal for ECW or trying to talk to some people of importance about ECW and he went to go film roll a ball or something like that. And he got, uh, he, 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 I think he said he was booked through it through WWE. Like he told the ECW wrestlers that he was like going on this trip to like, you know, quote unquote, save ECW or something like that. And he went to go film a movie, but he clarified from his perspective that he got booked through it through WWE. And that was just like, what, what, one of the things like towards the end of ECW start hearing like all these, uh, negative stories about Heyman and how he, you know, lots of wrestlers and, and, and things of the sort. Yeah, because obviously, you know, there is going to be a lot. Of, it's, I mean, John, as far as you're aware, it's just still a lot of bad blood from certain wrestlers towards Paul Heyman. Because I suppose, you know, with all the bounce checks and, and things like that, and, you know, and then seeing him turning up on WWE, you know, just as ECW's folding, I suppose, you know, that wouldn't sit too well with them. Is there still people sort of like holding grudges towards Paul Heyman today? I think it depends on the the person and the era and how they got on. So, I mean, like somebody like a, a Rob Van Dam, who he actually just quit the company because he was sort of so far behind in in being paid. Um, but you know, he then went on to have sort of very successful career and, and kind of made it all back. And it's like not so such a big deal. I think the ones who kind of lost their money um, and then like didn't get picked up else elsewhere, obviously would naturally kind of have the thing. It's very much for you because kind of there's there's this uh, impression that you know 
ECW bounced their checks the whole time. And it was really, other than, I think there was like one cycle in 99. And then other than that, it was just like the final year or so where, you know, the finances were completely out of control. And that's where the, you know, it's persistently people were either getting bounce checks or literally just not getting paid. Uh, and they had sort of no alternative. And, you know, if they'd sued, the money wasn't there to pay them. So I think mm-hmm. it, it's really down to sort of every every kind of individual and as to how well they were sort of responded to it. Yeah, we're not talking small amounts here, Andrew. I think um, I read it at RVD was owed about hundred grand um, when he was sort of like when he decided not to turn up to a ECW show. So it's not like you know minimal amounts of money. But um, I suppose back to the documentary and they start to talk about you know we, they talk about Taz left, he lost the ECW title in, in a three way, and then. Um, then the Dudleys leave, you know, Bubba says that, you know, they weren't owed any money, you know, they just asked for a reason to stay and Eamon immediately told them to leave if they wanted to. And then it really goes heavily into the problems they did have finally getting this TV deal with TNN, you know, they claim on the documentary that they were highest rated show on TNN and they were used as a lead into Roller Jam and you see this funny clip of uh, Joey Styles having to high cut Roller Jam mm-hmm. coming after the ECW mm-hmm. show and then... um. And just stupid things like TNN used to demand them saying, he said, it's not hate, it's supposed to be intense dislike and and things like that. And it seems like Vince McMahon's uh, words fell on deaf ears saying, you know, you'll have to change your product now you're on, uh, now you're on a, a big TV station. And then it all goes to, um, you know, them saying basically because TNN were working with WWE behind the scenes because they wanted WWE on the station and, and you know, ECW was just... Um, you know, just an experiment to see how well wrestling had gone on the channel. And um, well, what is an interesting thing that was noted that Heyman says that, you know, the, the video game deal they got and other, the, the other licensing agreements and endorsements they might not have got if unless they did have this uh, TV deal, John. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the, the, the case of, you know, the cost of expansion that was kind of necessary to kind of try betting on to see if there was stage and there's never been kind of a stage for a, you know a really successful third company and it's definitely a, a different era in terms of, of finances where now first of all you have so many different options for making money from like online streaming from merchandise and so on um and also just the, the fact that tv is so different that you know the deal they had I think they basically didn't get paid any money. It was it was just a case of you're getting the exposure. Um, but they actually, if I remember rightly, they uh, had to sort of share in any sort of increase in revenue that they had after getting on TV. A, a percentage of that had to go to TNN. Um, and it was definitely, they they talk about, uh, you know, what if they'd been able to get on another network? And it really depends if they'd got a, a good paying deal. If they if they'd been paid money for the the television, kind of proportionally to the same way that you know the other stations were able to get, the other promotions were getting, they definitely could have you know kept things going for longer and maybe had a chance to see what happened. You know, if, if they'd outlived WCW and you had all that talent suddenly come free, it might give them a chance to to survive longer. Yeah, like one one of the uh, the things that kind of caught my ear. Like as as the documentary started to wind down was when Heyman said that uh like if if they were on a different network you know things would have kind of panned out differently and I like I I think that's a question that I think that I hope that somebody would ask Paul Heyman like if, if they get a chance to interview him to this day like if like if you think that like you would have had a if you had a, if you could have had your choice of networks that you think would have 
that you would have been able to carry the ECW product through uh, without certain restrictions? Like, which one do you think would have benefited? I'm just curious to like hear like what his answer would be. I think that's the issue, isn't it? Because with how extreme ECW was in terms of the product they were putting out, I don't think, you know, WWE were always constantly fighting with, you know, the attitude era stuff. And I don't think a lot of networks would have wanted to touch it, especially with their peacher, um, the Parent Teachers Association breathing down their neck and things like that. And mm. certainly they're discussing the documentary with the advertisers and things like that. You know, it, it would have been hard for any network to pick up ECW around that time. But they, they also talk about Mike Awesome's not really talked about much in this documentary. Obviously, he had the really famous matches with, um, you know, naturally, they might not want to talk about, you, you know, you know, with what happened with Mike Awesome, but he obviously had the really famous match he was with, um, with Spike Dudley and the like in ECW. But then he does get brought up here because he was still ECW champion when he defected to WCW and, and the story here is that, you know, they wanted him to dump the belt in the trash on TV and, um, you know, apparently they managed to come up with some deal where Taz came back and then um, he ended up defeating Awesome for the title and then even, was it, did they mention maybe that, you know, he defended the ECW title against Triple H on Raw and, and it's just interesting the fact that, you know, we had all this war going on and then you've got Taz who's a WWE contracted guy against Mike Awesome, who's a WCW contracted guy. Interesting that the footage is quite uh, quite ropey for that match, John. Yes, I mean, that's just a, uh, it, it, if I remember rightly, it wasn't a, a TV taping, so it was just kind of a, a single camera thing. And it's it's very much a, a negotiated finish, I think is probably the, the term. But I think the most interesting bit from uh, the documentary is that they do mention the fact that Taz then went on TV the next week uh, on WWE TV with the title belt and and lost to Triple H with uh, sort of Tommy Dreamer's interference backstage, uh, or sort of backfiring. And they then have sort of Vince McMahon just looking back and going, you know, when I look back on it, I can kind of see actually it, it doesn't really help them very much uh, to help promote <laughs> that. So I don't know what I was thinking. It's, it's kind of amazing to see that sort of, you know, self-reflection and acknowledgement, but, uh, you know, it wasn't all we were doing the right thing for business to, to help them out, but it doesn't really look like that now. I think the other thing that uh, they miss out there, but uh, I think from a sort of uh, an in-ring sort of storyline perspective is, uh, might be worth mentioning is the fact that they show Tommy Dreamer wins the, the title. Um, what they don't show is that Justin Credible comes out, um, immediately challenges him for the, the title and wins the title sort of two minutes after he's won it. Uh, and they very deliberately made the point that uh, Tommy Dreamer never actually put the belt around his waist. So he didn't even sort of get that moment of glory before sort of, uh, Justin Credible takes over. Yeah, because just incredible and Lance Stone were sort of like the big, especially with the impact players, they were sort of like uh, the bigger names uh, headlining ECW shows in the latter days, weren't they? Yeah, and I think that's um, a, an interesting one to kind of look back on because I think certainly people who were kind of not watching regularly or sort of not paying attention, you know, just incredible at that point. Um, has been kind of established as Aldo Montoya's kind of real jobber. And I think the idea, you know, he was their champion and things must have been bad. But you also get kind of the, the sort of the, the people who kind of re, do these like big rewatching projects who sort of trying to go for a particular period and they've sourced, uh, they've watched like every house show that's been sort of recorded on Camcord at the time. They oh. quite often say, you know, he was quite effective as a, a champion, um, you know, on 
kind of uh, keeping the belt and sort of putting together sort of, you know, quality main events. So that's kind of a, a slightly different aspect of the story. Like kind of like, you know, continue on the topic of like people who kind of got like a, a little bit of the spotlight in the documentary. Like one, one person that I really did, like I was, I, I kind of like, was like, oh man, that's cool to see was saying too cold Scorpio. Like, yeah. dude, like, <laughs> It, like I'm, I'm so glad that he's able to, you know, get his flowers today and like still, you know, making the rounds in the independent scene. Like I know he worked, uh, he worked two of the uh, GCW for the culture show so far. Like he's still uh, working for VXS Wrestling, I think. Of uh, yeah, he he's still like all over the place, man. So I'm glad to see Tuco Scorpio being able to like, you know, you know what I'm saying, just a sidebar, just to you know see him get his flowers. Uh, and people appreciate him for the work that he's put in throughout the years. Yeah, documentary on him would be really interesting considering all the promotions he's been involved in and sort of like his, his latter runs in, in pro wrestling now and still going today. Yeah, he's certainly be an interesting figure and quite heavily involved in a lot of those uh, early ECW shows. But um, on the documentary, we sort of come to the end and they talk about uh, ECW closing down. Heyman's quite adamant that, you know, they would have kept going had they got another TV deal, whereas, you know, a lot of the wrestlers are saying that, you know, Heyman was great creatively and great as a booker, and especially Jericho announced that he's just really bad with finances and maybe should have some kind of sort of like financial manager involved there. And then interesting that uh, Vince and Eric Bischoff suggest that it went under mainly because of the one-dimensional nature of the product and that, you know, it only appealed to a small segment of a national audience. Do you think that's fair, John? Because obviously, you know, they've always had that critique that, you know, oh, it's just bingo hall wrestling and, you know, it only sort of like appeals to a hardcore hardcore element well i mean at the end you know they were doing up to a hundred thousand buys for some pay-per-views you know they were getting a, a decent rating for a, sort of a national tv show um so there was definitely like a level of interest there it wasn't like this complete niche project it was just you know the fact that they weren't making money and and that they their, their cash flow got completely out of hand that meant that you know at some point they were going to go under it was just how big they were going to be at when that that point came but it's it's kind of you know fascinating to to see kind of the different uh responses to to how they were doing that um one thing they they don't address that's, that's quite interesting is the fact that actually their final shows were in arkansas of all places which is you know it's about far away from the east w arena as you can get <laughs> these, these little spot shows and i i read a, a wonderful piece quite recently about uh from a person who's a fan there and they had this thing called the ecw street dream which was basically ecw's way of saying you know if you want if you're a fan you want to help out the company you can join the street team and basically you're going out handing out flyers and putting up mm-hmm. posters to promote the show and this um person had fan from from arkansas sort of lobbied for years uh to ecw saying you know come to come to our arkansas i know it sounds silly but you've you've got a really big fan base here i know you definitely be able to put on a good show um you know i could could help out we've got people who could help out with promotion and ecw sort of finally said like yep yeah, okay we'll go we'll give it a go they went down to these sort of shows in uh, i think pine bluff was the final one it turned out to be the, the final ever ecw show and something was like never meant to happen this guy sort of accidentally um turned out to be sort of you know the, the co-promoter as it was of the, the final ecw events wow yeah that is a really interesting that's something that uh, independent bands used to uh, utilize quite a lot of street team and you then they'd ask people to go out and fly around their local town if they were you know and you maybe get a free ticket to the to the gig they were playing so yeah interesting that ecw was utilizing that as well and then 
I thought they spent quite a bit of time at the end talking about Paul Heyman debuting on Raw as announcer. You know, he had to go to WWE in order to move on and get on with his life. And, um, you know, and the wrestlers saying that they felt that Paul's dream was to be his own boss, but didn't get quite get that opportunity. And, um, you know, and Vince even says, you know, full of praise for Paul. He's saying that he should be commended for everything he accomplished and that Paul's realization that, you know, he had to move on, spoke very highly of his character. And then it, it sort of wraps up and people are giving their you know, memories and thoughts of ECW. And um, I wanted to ask you two, obviously, Andrew, obviously watched minimal ECW, but coming out of this, what would you say their legacy is and their uh, sort of like influence on on the wrestling business? Um, I mean, they certainly influenced uh, WWE in terms of the attitude here and things like yeah. that. Yeah, I, I really think they did uh, influence the attitude there. But I, I think ECW, looking back, I think they, of course, they had like a, a major influence. Like even to this day, people still, speak highly of it, share their memories of it. You know, like uh, even John turned out a book about it. You know what I'm saying? Like, see, it's a, I, I, I think that like, like, he, he, so I'm trying to like formulate like the, 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 like my, my exact thoughts about it. But yeah, I, I just think that ECW did have a profound effect on professional wrestling. And it like, I don't, I don't think there will ever be a point in time when people don't look back fondly or ECW or like specifically the, you know, the fans and the, you know, just the overall in-ring product and the different style that was presented. And like, like even to this day, you still get your occasional ECW chance, you know, from time to time. It's not as you know prevalent as it once was uh, maybe five or 10 years ago, but this, this, you know, it's still there. So I, I think that just goes to show you, you know, how, like how big of an impact ECW had, like, you don't hear people in the chance chain WCW, stuff like that but like i i think it just go really just goes to show you like how many people were influenced by ecw how many people were fans yeah i think for me as a fan i very much think it was it was of its time and i'm certainly think um, a lot of it doesn't hold up today outside of sort of like this stuff with uh, malenko and the like but in terms of influence i mean certainly a lot of things were copied and uh, you know they certainly influenced the two major promotions who, who took that and and really ran with it. Um, I mean, I don't know what your uh, what your thoughts are on it, John. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd say the the two main kind of long term influences. One is just the bring, being open to bringing together all sorts of different styles, different formats, different approaches, and not kind of going with the the idea that you know there has to be this one particular way of doing it. The way we do it is right. Our style is right. Everyone works this style, um, and also just kind of. And this is very much a, you know, for better and for worse, but changing the, like, the idea of wrestling from being, we've got the fans' money, okay, what's the least we can get away with to do on this show to not make the fans feel ripped off, but to, you know, we don't want to get injured, we, we've we got to work as kind of this permanent schedule, you know, like the WWF 80s thing where you were doing like, 20 shows in a row and you were just a zombie by the end of it. And it was like, let's just, you know, all that matters is we've got a 10 minute match. Let's make sure it lasts 10 minutes and nobody gets hurt. Whereas ECW is very much like, what can we do to make this, you know, the best possible show with the talent available to us with the kind of, you know, the facilities we have available to us, you know, it's work around the limitations. Let's kind of use uh the fact we've got a low budget kind of make that as a a creative impetus uh and really let's you know just cater to what this audience wants and i certainly think as far as indie wrestling goes today i mean uh, obviously not many indie shows running at the moment but pre-covid virtually every promotion is you know independent promotion has taken that 
variety show aspect, you know, where you have the technical wrestling, you have the hardcore stuff, and then you have a little bit of this and a bit of the comedy and things like that with the BWO. And certainly virtually every indie promotion around the world has taken that template and run with it, you know, by having a variety of different styles and different wrestlers on there, which um, was something that ECW used to do. Um, but as far as like just wrapping up the documentary, um, I mean, you mentioned a few things that were missing um, from the documentary, John. Any other things that you thought were missing? For me, I mean, we talked about it at the start, that Cyberslam 96. I thought that was a, I don't know if it's just me and the bubble that I was living in at the time, but that whole Pillman thing with him coming out and saying, you know, I'm going to get my Johnson out and piss in the ring and all this other stuff. I feel like that was quite a, an omission from the documentary because that was a, a big event and obviously... Um, a larger part of the loose cannon Brian Pillman character. Yeah, I think a lot of the things that aren't in the show are in there. It, it's kind of a time thing. It's like you, you definitely couldn't imagine they would have included them had it been you know, like a, a six-part series or something. Um, I mean, in terms of the big picture, it's 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 generally there. There's a, a few kind of key storylines. I think you know, there's not much about nine one one or about sort of uh, the heel referee Ben Alfonso, um, and sort of you know the storylines that that he was kind of involved in. Um, and so there's there's very little about the in ring sort of after barely barely legal. It's really just like Rob Van Dam became a big star, and that's about it. Um, mm. <laughs> um, which you know, it it, it was more. Probably you can argue in some ways a lot of the matches were maybe better in the later years, but the sort of characters weren't so strong and people who were sort of making a name themselves were were picked up and went to the, the bigger promotions a lot more quickly so they didn't really establish themselves. Um, but I think that's kind of the, the, the main bits that are missing for the documentary. But I think overall it's it it gives a kind of a fair overall kind of story of the the story of ECW and kind of ca- captures a lot of the the sort of more memorable moments and characters and sort of the, the general what what made the atmosphere so different. Yeah, and obviously I mentioned at the start this was a huge seller, and you know, following this documentary, we had the one night only show in two thousand and five, then the one night only show again in two thousand and six. So the first one a fantastic show, and I thought the second one was pretty good. If, if maybe a bit too diluted with the WWE talent. And then we had, you know, they, they came back with the promotion as a new brand. And we seem to have millions of ECW revivals around the time. And then TNA did it as well. And then they kind of just bled this thing dry until, for me, I was personally just sick of seeing ECW, Andrew. Yeah. I, 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 like, so, of course, like, it, it was like, for, for me, and like watching it through, you know, seeing WWE trying to revive the brand. Like, I feel like after a year, it was just like, all right, like it's, it's time to, you know, put, put this thing to bed. And uh, they kept trying and trying and then try to, you know, it, 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 it just never really like compared, compared to what the original EZW was, it, it just never, like, I, I don't know what the, what, what their intentions were in times, of, like in terms of trying to, if they were trying to bring back the same feel that ECW once had, if, they, if that was the intention, it did not work at all. Like, it seemed like it was, it was good to, it, it, it can't, the, I say I would say the only good thing that came out of that WWE version of ECW was the rise of CM Punk. That was probably mm-hmm. like one of the more positive things that came out. But like other than that, like like you know, Big Show winning the title and you know all that stuff that they were trying <laughs> to do, like it it, it just it, it just never clicked. Well, how do you feel about it, John? Do you think they should have just done that one show and then called it quits? Yeah, I think the. You know what ECW became the, the the revised version by sort of 
2008-2009 where it was basically just a third brand of WF that had you know like your kind of your Christians your Regals and your Gold Dusts I think without the ECW name I think it would have been a lot better uh, reception and better remembered but it was always just that kind of comparison to being something completely different but I mean, so yeah, we've we've seen it's quite telling you've had all these sort of reunions and revivals. And I still think one of the most impressive promotional things ever is the fact that TNA managed to do an ECW tribute three hour pay-per-view without mentioning the words ECW at any point, <laughs> which is just incredibly creative. It's you know, that Philadelphia promotion. And it also gave the, the moment which, you know, as, as much as it was great to, you know, see the old wrestlers come back and still be able to do their spots just for a little bit they had with with Francine who just came on and she was like oh, I remember being ECW I had a great time there and I've moved on with my life I'm bringing up my little girl and I'm really happy and it was kind of just quite nice to see that as a difference to you know all the other guys who are like oh, I'm still going 15 years later I'm still on a hardcore icon I'm completely broken down you know all my friends mm. have died from drug overdoses and you know she she kind of had her time got out and and remembers it well yeah say WWE they pumped out the uh I don't know if you guys remember the, the the SmackDown versus Raw 2008 featuring ECW. That was that, that was that was that was one of the things that came out of that came out of that partnership. Oh yeah, <laughs> well yeah, because it's even on that weekend of one night only the Shane Douglas put on the show as well, didn't he? And that was and it was because it was interesting leading up to that one night only. What show we were actually going to get, wasn't it, John? We were, you know, was it going to be a watered down product? Where they pulled it off really well, I, I thought, especially. You know, obviously, everyone talks about, you know, Paul Heyman, you know, quote unquote, shooting on the likes of JBL and Edge and that. But as, as a whole, a, a show, I mean, it was missing the likes of Terry Funk and that. But as a whole, it was a, a really well produced show, which I think Vince McMahon showed, you know, apparently he was backstage doing Gorilla, but, he, you know, it didn't seem like many of his fingerprints were over that one night only show. Yeah, I think certainly at, at that time, you know, having seen kind of uh, how he's talking about documentary, um, I think he was always, you know, have this kind of fascination in, in kind of ECW from the idea of, you know, the small promotion making it being kind of maybe reminding himself of, you know, his early years of kind of growing, you know, when he was an independent promoter and then taking over WF and sort of the fight to grow it. And I think there was always that sort of, maybe he sort of had that interest, you know, what if it had been him in that position of kind of trying to start something completely from scratch, which obviously at this point, you know, was never going to happen again because he was, you know, once the WWF went public in, in 1999 um, and got, you know, 300 million in cash, that was it. They were, you know, they're never not going to be the number one company. Um, but I think, yeah, we remember that, that Paul Heyman speech and it's, it's amazing. It took 16 years, but finally Triple H is working Tuesdays. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, I, I remember specifically like, me watching the um the one night stand 06 show and i was so curious i was like because it, it seemed like every every wwe talent was getting booed out the damn building right mm. except for, but like when, when ray mysterio came out i was like I, like me, me at the time i'm like I don't, I don't remember how old i probably was like eight nine years old i'm saying i'm like why is ray mysterio not getting booed out of the building and then you know of course later come find out that he spent time in ecw and stuff like that so i was like that that's one of the like I guess it's a, a cool thing for me to kind of like look back on as far as like a a childhood memory and stuff like that. But yeah, it, it was uh like I, one of my probably if, if there was anything that I can look back on that like kind of fondly, I guess from the from from it was probably that the first and the second one night stand shows because I think those were entertaining as they kind of focused in more on 
you know, the wholeness of what ECW was just a little bit. And like once they got past the whole, like, I think it was 2007, like it was the entire car was like just WWE based talent. Like it was, you know, but they took the ECW name and then converted it into, uh, I think it was now called Extreme Rules. So like it's, you know. It's funny though that um, even WWE are admitting that um, the invasion angle with uh, ECW matching up with WCW was complete failure because that got no play in this documentary. But uh, <laughs> it was good that we didn't have to relive any of that. But um, yeah, it's been great looking back and going down memory lane and, and rewatching this documentary. I remember buying it at the time and really enjoying it, and you know, quite eye opening in terms of the amount of interviews they got. But um, I suppose um, before we head out of here, um, Andrew, uh, what um, sort of like interviews, writing, and, and things have you have you got going on this month? Yeah, so I do got some um, some new interviews coming to the YouTube channel. I just put up uh, a clip today, uh, two clips today of uh, one, one with B Priestley from my interview with uh, with her from Starcast 2019 in Baltimore, and I put another clip up from an interview that I did with Nick Alda. So you guys can go check that out. Uh, some some interesting stuff, I think, and then you can go check out all my written work over at the post wrestling site and john obviously we talked about um your incredible book ecw turning the tables which is obviously available on amazon and every other uh book selling website and and what other uh sort of like books have you got out and where can people see some more of your writing yeah a couple of other books to look out for are um Perodicy, which is the uh trip report of the first time i went to japan a few years so it's kind of uh half about the wrestling, half about just the, the culture shock of, of being in Japan. And also have a good week till next week, which is a series of profiles of British wrestlers from sort of the ITV era, uh, largely based on either interviewing the wrestler themselves or talking to sort of people who worked with them if they've sort of passed on since. A lot of uh, stuff about both their career and their sort of a life outside the ring. And also just finished a, a project. So I have a, a website called itvwrestling.co.uk, which has complete listings of all the matches that were on ITV and the results. And mm. I've also just finished refreshing. Uh, so wherever there's a, a video on YouTube of a, a match, it's now embedded next to results. You can almost use it like a, the equivalent of like a, a WW network to watch back all the, the matches and just finished uh, updating that with about uh, 160 new uploads. That's wow. cool as hell. That's yeah, cool. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and certainly your book, uh, is it Slamathology, where you talk about your trips over to America and stuff. That's a great sort of like uh, diary about John's trips to ECW and all, um, you know, the sportatorium, things like that. Definitely worth checking out. That's available on Amazon as well. Um, but for me, um, last couple of episodes I did, uh, last episode talking about the, uh, on the British Wrestling Experience, talking about the APPG Wrestling Report. And we had uh, Alex Davis-Jones, who was one of the chairs of that, talking about it. And then also Alan Collins, it was a high-profile uh, abuse lit- uh, child abuse litigator over here, giving his opinions on it. And then prior to that, me and Benno had the honor of talking to Gary Michael Capetta um, in his uh, local library, telling us um, <laughs> stories about Mick Foley's ear while um, he was getting told off by librarians because his mats kept uh, riding down his face. So definitely check that one out. And uh, yeah, me and Benno will be back um, in a couple of weeks. And then me and Andrew will be back uh, at the end of next month. So we'll catch you then. <laughs>